Bring them blueberries over here. Blueberries and wild cherries from up the street. Uh, some strawberries, some blueberries, weed, wine. This idea grave is going to be fueled by the chocolateria giant turtle that we found lying on a, a plate after my girlfriend's dinner party. I'm descending on this chocolate treat like a fucking vulture. Chicken pot pie. That was a feature earlier. Mmm, with spelt crust. Yeah. Goddamn that uh, GRG can cook. Goddamn. That's the way you make it good. Oh, yeah. Salt. Salt always makes it that extra little accent that makes the sweetness balance out. I don't know what it was, but fire made it good. Jeez <laughs> <laughs> Louise. And you can do crazy jumps with the with the Bigfoot monster trucks oh, and stuff? Oh yeah, it, it's like practically indestructible and just rides over all the cars super easily. Mm -hmm. And it's by far the biggest vehicle that they've put in the game so far. Oh, killer. Yeah. So it kind of takes the place of the tank almost? You can yeah, just... You can get a tank in that game though too. Mm -hmm. GTA Five is fucking huge, and they, yeah. they've maybe put like five or six updates already, and they've yeah. added easily like twenty cars, twenty cars and bikes and like boats. And See, that's like remarkable that. because like they might have may have reached a <clears throat> tipping point with uh, GTA where you don't need to make the core engine any better. You can just yeah. turn it into a social network and have. Um, a membership fee where it's like five dollars for every update and they just keep making updates for yeah. 10 years I or think whatever. That's right. and i think they're saving the the big like they I think they've probably already developed a, a couple like really big updates because the game came out in like september mm. of last year so i think they're waiting they're going to put out a version for ps4 and for xbox one like they don't have the next generation ports out yet and i think once they put those out then they'll start rolling out the actual like money updates because uh, now they've just been giving them for free they've given away like 10 new weapons like 20 cars for free just like periodically i think they're gonna have like big significant ones that come out and then drop with like the new versions yeah that way everyone kind of gets them all at once this might be only something that's interesting to me but i wish that they would do some comedy um comedy based releases yeah, we, where it's all light like there's nothing in it that has to do with shooting up places or new weapons or cars it's yeah. about ridiculous misadventures that's what that's what we were saying like, two two things that me and crawford think would be fucking perfect for the game one um like a james bond update where, like, they put out a couple cars that have, like, retractable machine guns. And they put out smoke <laughs> screens and, like, drop jacks Or and Batmobile. Like and they kind of did put, like, an almost Batmobile into the game. Um, but, yeah, they didn't add any, like, crazy fantastical gadgets, which is, like, what I want. And then give the player a bunch of gadgets, like, a wrist laser. So they can just be, like, yeah. and, like, burn people on the street. Yeah, and it could totally be seamlessly integrated, right? Where you find, like, a secret agent memo. Yeah. And you go, like, all right, let's go to the HQ. Ride the secret elevator down in the bottom. You're not supposed to be here. People, people are, have been waiting. There's like all this allusion to a jetpack being in the game because there's a jetpack in San Andreas, mm -hmm. and this game is basically just like the next generation of the San Andreas. Yeah, people franchise. are starting to look for the Easter eggs that were in previous games. Yeah, that's a smart thing to do. Well, yeah, because well, they they put a bunch of allusion into it. Like there's all these UFOs you can find and all these like weird markings, and they show a couple of them show like a guy like blasting around in a jetpack, but there. There's no none in the game yet, yet. but obviously like they're going to put a deal. Yeah, and, and they that. know it's smart to have it associated with an update because yeah. they know with the network effect on the internet, regardless of how well they hide stuff, it comes out 
immediately. Like people exactly. find things immediately. People tear the code people are apart. Insane. Yeah, people tear the the source code apart and they they find. Is that how they do it? Because I, when yeah. I was playing like Final Fantasy and stuff, I needed a strategy guide. <laughs> to arrive at things like you want to get a golden chocobo yeah like there's no one. fucking way that you can figure out that you have to peck in the middle of the ocean and find this and then you got to get this and then breed these two chocobos together it's so complicated way, right way of doing it in the game but even that like would almost require Here, uh, a strategy guide. clip in there clip in there even that required a strategy because you have to go and you have to talk to this like crazy old man in the middle of the snow lands you just mm -hmm. like find a house and for the first 99 times that you talk to him he doesn't say anything significant mm -hmm. and then after that he starts to tell you step by step how to make a gold chocobo oh so there's a dude who spills the beans the, the recipe for the but you have you have to talk to him like a hundred times before he even starts to tell you so you have to just sit there and hit x <laughs> that many times in a row to make him do anything yeah and I, like, I ran into a dude, I, I had, for certain, like, I didn't have deep video game knowledge, but for certain I thought that you these things were well enough hidden that nobody was crazy enough to figure it out on their own. And then I ran into this dude in my illustration class in college named Romano, who was insane with video games. Like, he would go on binges of eight or nine hours, like, after class. He had no social life. He just played video games all the time. Yeah. And he was able to crack the code on all of those hidden items and stuff just by brute force. Just by constantly, like, clicking everything on the game, um, analyzing everything every NPC would say. He was nuts. Insane. And all you need is, like, one of those guys on the internet to like spill the word like when they yeah. find the shit and then it's immediately out well it's pretty amazing like one of the probably one of the biggest like uh easter egg hunts in a game ever was uh, shadow of the colossus because that game has a gigantic disappointing disappointing last secret where didn't you, you try forever to get to the top of that fucking tower and then and you did and nothing happened yeah you, you get to the top of the tower and then all that's there is uh fruit that makes you weaker so it actually just like doesn't improve your, the gameplay experience at all. It just it makes it harder. Um, and yeah, there's just a bunch of kind of cryptic nightmare mode hanging hanging around up there. But people for years and years and years tried all the different possible combinations because they were decided that there's no way the creators would have made this beautiful cryptic giant game yeah. and made the last secret so um, like thoroughly disappointing and boring. But in a way, doesn't it kind of tie in thematically with what goes on in the game? Because it's kind of a, a downer, the whole story of Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, it's right? a pretty it's a pretty vague story, but it's definitely like pulls at you, pulls at your heartstrings near the end there, and it's all just like you realize that you're the you're the evil one. Totally, <laughs> you're decimating all the creatures of this this land, and, and then you end up releasing some sort of demon. Yeah, and then the you end, become you? him and get tossed into a fountain. Spoiler alert for, <laughs> for a game that's like 11 years old. Rewind. Rewind. Uh, yeah, it, people were just completely unwilling to admit that they, the secret would be that's that boring at the end and that you'd have to go through so much to get nothing. Mm -hmm. So that there had to have been something else. And that made the game popular among like internet Easter egg hunters for years until eventually someone tore the source code apart bit by bit by bit by bit and found there was nothing else like people had found oh. every last part of the game and it killed killed the the kind of um weird 
like mythos around the game you know that it, poor it, bastard it, that had to tear apart the source code only to find nothing to find absolutely Treasure nothing Hunter. hidden um and yeah and now their their next game they've been working on that for like seven eight years and still mm. not coming out shadow of the colossus had a similar vibe to me as um did you ever play chrono trigger yeah yeah. And what was the sequel, Chrono Cross? Chrono Cross, yeah. I think this one. that was a really interesting uh, adventure because it had that same Shadow of the Colossus vibe in that each time you defeated a dragon or a boss in each area, it became clear that that creature was supporting the ecosystem yeah. around it. And when you returned later to the place, it would all be in decline. Um, the, the plants had died and, um, all of the animals, like the things that were your obstacles as you defeat them, it ends up ruining the ecosystem of the area that you're in. Yeah. Um, and Shadow of the Colossus kind of had that same vibe where. Yeah. You'd return and they'd just be giant, like stone mounds with grass growing all over them. And the mm -hmm. area just wouldn't be quite as vibrant or, well, I mean, just, just lose a lot of vibrance, but there's not a hundred foot bear walking around. <laughs> um, that game managed to to pull off a lot of really just rare, beautiful gaming moments. Just riding the horse around the land for the first time before you've seen any of it. Yeah. And how winding and confusing. And the, the only thing that points you is like light from the sun. Sword. Yeah. And that's it. And you just ride around. A lot of games have tried to pull that off since. Like even with horse riding. It's just not. not it like was totally Skyrim punk at the time, right? Because it was a completely... Um, counter uh, culture game compared to what was going on like every game was getting more hyper realistic more loud more crazy with the special effects more crazy with this more crazy with the number of characters on the screen and stuff and then you had shadow of the colossus come out and it was totally stark and totally meditative yeah and um, just one-on-one -on -one, like you mm -hmm. versus this giant creature mm -hmm. very subtle music very soft soundtrack very yeah it's so strange and it it's sort of the the predecessor to games like God of War, but that series lost the the sparse the sparse environment and the atmosphere. Feeling, yeah, the atmosphere, like they packed too much in. They mm -hmm. took that idea, but made it so like oh, it's just now it's just like a button mashing epic. Mm -hmm. There's not a really a lot of strategy to it. If you can just memorize how to tap buttons in order, then yeah, you can kill everything in the game. In a lot of ways, the Descendants. There's a lot of um, kind of mobile phone based games that are more illustrative and quiet that have a similar vibe to Shadow of the Colossus. So. Yeah, that Jim Guthrie game uh, that he mm -hmm. made with the, the mm -hmm. Super Brothers, Sword and Sorcery. The game's beautiful, very simple. Looks like a game from 1994. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is uh, such a popular style now. People are going out of their way to make games look like the mid-90s again. Oh, totally. T I think 2D now with HD and with like the kind of colors you can pull off, 2D is the way to go. 3D games are nice looking and Grand Theft Auto looks amazing, but a really, really well-drawn 2D game. There's a game coming out that looks exactly like a 1930s animation. Oh, wild. It's, uh, yeah, it's an Xbox exclusive, which kind of sucks for uh, Sony gamers, but it's identical looking to like an old Mickey Mouse mm. or like, you know. Yeah, it's funny because they originally were trying to push the processing power and stuff to make ever more realistic games, but it's starting to get uh, decreasing returns, right? Like you can only yeah. make it so realistic and have it still be playable. And what I think they're finding is like after they were chasing this realism for so long, 
they realized, oh, you know what we could do really, really well? Like perfect tune shaders and perfect 2D uh, scrolling platforms. Yeah, and there's something about that like turn in gaming because growing up playing games my whole life in the 90s, you see 2D just getting better and better and looking better and better and all these two games sort of exceeding. And every once in a while, you see a 3D game that looks like half good. But then by the end of the 90s, like turn to the 2000s, it was just this big cock show of just like how how much processing power do you need mm-hmm. to play our game you know and it would be advertised that way yeah like doom 3 your computer is polygons. fucked yeah doom. <laughs> you can't play this game with your pussy fucking computer oh jesus i'm gonna have to upgrade yeah um but that sort of in that there's a lot of nuance and art that existed in games prior in all the point-and-click adventure games from, mm-hmm. like, LucasArts and Sierra. They were well-written. They were funny. The puzzles were hard. They were, like, engaging. They made you feel as if you were this protagonist in the way that, like, you read a book. And then all of a sudden, like, night and day, just hyper-realistic first-person shooters and games that just boast about, like, how beautiful, how many polygons, like, how high-res... How like fucking yeah. huge the sound files are, and the blah, shame blah, 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 is blah. that uh, the the gameplay experience suffers. Like these open world games are spread so thin, you you start to see through the veneer of the character design and stuff like real fucking fast. Yeah, like there's not a lot of special things. They wow you. Games <clears> like <throat> Skyrim wow you at the beginning, where they're like it's so beautiful and the character design is really in depth, and you at the very beginning feel like you have a really huge impact on your environment and then after about like 10 hours you realize you've just been riding around on a horse in the fucking snow it's the same endlessly. ogre over and over again every, they just rearrange the elements every time you get to a cave it's the same goddamn winding stone paths and like blue crystals and shit there's nothing different ever other than killing the dragons which is like there's only a handful of them in the game and mm. after that's done then you're you're finished with all your big tasks you, you take it back old school and it was like Mario Brothers had eight levels. All of them look completely different. Mechanics would change each time, and it leads to a lot of really strong memories associated with that. Everyone remembers Big World and, like, Mm -hmm. Water World and Ice World and stuff like that. Um, In this one, it's just, like, all ice and mountain world, and everything looks good, sure, and it's, like, super fucking It's an accomplishment, for sure, but I just miss the editing. I miss the... I wish that they would make a game that had very similar mechanics, but it's, like, not necessarily back on rails, but... You know, there should be a very clear defined area where it's like we're going to play the Resident Evil uh, mansion and then we're going to go down to the laboratory and, you know, it's, it's something with limits. It's sort of a shame to say it, but there it is kind of like one or the other. Either you make a a wide open kind of sandbox game like The Sims or Minecraft yeah. or Gary's Mod. Minecraft or you, is or you make a, the best example. Or you make a very narrowly narrative game that doesn't give people a lot of ability to stray far from the story Mm. um and anything in between sort of falls short on either thing like the open world experience isn't broad enough for people and the storytelling is too thin for people and Mm -hmm. so what you just end up with is sort of like middle of the road mediocre game and a lot of games are trying to be those grand theft autos and those like big open world games that feel okay to just do nothing in that's the big thing right like if you can jump into a game and just do nothing right and not really have like a goal you just in minecraft you set off and just do stuff you figure out what you want to be doing at that point but there's no like 
It doesn't have to be any you know sort how of guiding most thing. of the time when you let Grand Theft Auto run, you can see the the cycles of the characters. How it's like, oh, that guy walks from the dumpster to the corner of the avenue, and then he plays a saxophone, and then he walks up here, and then he goes around they, the loop. They fixed that Did a they little change bit. That? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I feel like they've bettered Grand Theft Auto because the core gameplay is the same as mm-hmm. three. If you, I mean, it's not as crazy in Grand Theft Auto Three, but it's really just like you shoot some people, you're killing people for hits, you're bringing package from here to here, you're driving, you're killing, you're running from the police. It's all like pretty straightforward, and the way that they've just made it better in subsequent versions is just by making the world feel so random mm-hmm. that now you're just like if you just stand at a corner long enough different police chases will go by there might be an accident that blocks up the the thing some guy might rob you or like get into a fight that's with you. exactly what i was gonna ask i'm wondering if it got to the level of sophistication where people could have fan blogs about npcs in the game where it's <laughs> like there's this is jennifer the hooker you meet her in uh you know south central and if you follow her around this is jennifer's day on august 15th you know very specific like because it's different all the time it's like she visited this store at this time and you can have like screenshots of her eating a sandwich or whatever <laughs> i feel like pick f- up this john i feel like that's not too far off i mean the they don't have that in grand theft auto but in a couple other games that i've played recently and in the past they've sort of had that strange like i think sim city 4 did this where you could zoom in and all the different sims like there could be hundreds of thousands of sims but they would all have like a different name <laughs> and it would say their job and uh in this game i play banished which is the it's a fucking incredible game banished is basically like something like sim city or age of empires sort of a mix between the two but there's no conflict it's mm-hmm. just 15 people who have been thrown out of a colony and they're in a forest and you just have to try and like set up houses and survive winters. Uh, Winter is just kind of always coming around the corner and you're just <laughs> trying to like get enough food in your stores and get your people enough firewood so that they won't all die of starvation during the winter. Do you get um, to watch the winter slowly play out? And yeah, the, yeah. The it's supplies all eyes disappear and then cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. And, and just pe- people get hurt and so, like you can open minds. It's blah, blah, blah. The same kind of game, but it's unique in that the only goal is to survive winter for as long as you can just Mm -hmm. keep surviving um but you can also it has like the feature where you go in and it shows you sort of the thoughts and feelings of all the individual people living in your colony Mm -hmm. and find that to be such a weird aspect of it because for me it's all about the micromanaging and like the strategy yeah but uh did you play that breaking bad video game no Ilya sent it to me it's all completely text-based and it strips all of the aesthetics away and just has the game mechanics. Mm -hmm. So it has a number of different options. You can go, um, you're starting off as Walter with meager, um, set up stuff for his meth labs. Right. So you can eventually like raise up enough money slinging meth that you can buy the camper. And then once you have the camper, you can like invest money in gas masks and safety equipment. And they're all just like button options that appear on the screen in text. And it's totally just like click addiction. Where like you keep on slinging meth over and over again by by clicking the the meth icon and your your dollar figure slowly goes up and then a new button will appear on the side and it'll say like um, minus ten points new criminal moves into your turf and starts um, squeezing out your dealers 
and then you're like how do you deal with this and then there's options where you just try to raise up money to get a gun and like send an assassin out for them they've been like browser games like that forever it's it, it's, it's neat that it, it's uh modeled around breaking bad though because yeah. you've, you your head's so full of information from the show that you can totally see the plot playing out even though it's just text right it's like watching it in binary it's really neat yeah that's a that's interesting about old text games how they actually capture the sort of imagination of a book mm-hmm. like really really early games that like zork the first couple zork games are just all text mm-hmm. and i remember the first time i like played all the way through zork which is a lot of typing that's right. a lot of typing but somehow that's never what the memory is right you yeah. remember what you were thinking while you were reading that type. yeah it's it's very strange how there's a there's a certain element to that that i feel like it maybe is lost on today's generation like yeah kids would not be okay with sitting down at a at a dos prompt and <laughs> typing in like walk forward go right. north like pick up sword mm-hmm. oh, like that's too slow yeah way too slow but I really like the the kind of pacing and the imagination that it forces you to practice. Like you really have to think about it. You have to create the world yourself, mm-hmm. um, much in the way you would if you're reading Lord of the Rings and had never seen the. And movies, I wonder if you know? could, it could almost work as binary, right? Where the written word ends up being in some ways a more direct way to connect brains together, versus trying to make a facsimile in like a, a 3D engine, and how like you're trying to give the impression of like immersive beautiful jungle but because it's only polygons on the screen it, it it can never rise above the level of like cold polygons with skins of of photographed plants you know Do you it think always that's true kind of has a, a plasticky feel to it like compared to real world like going but, out into the, the actual forest i mean if you look at games that are coming out now it's starting with super hd like 4k tvs and stuff like mm-hmm. that and the potential power of something like the ps4 i think we're gonna see some near real if not indistinguishably real scenes played out i am video gaming i'm open-minded to it but i've always noticed that you watch the the cutscenes and the trailers for these games and you're like oh my god that's unprecedented amazing detail mm-hmm. and you actually boot it up on your system and it's much more average you're like well they've added a lot <clears throat> more design elements there's a lot more uh, splines or whatever the hell they are mm. sprites on the screen at a time but um it still feels it f- still feels like a game i don't know there's there's a few ps3 games a game called uh, heavy rain and uh I that remember, was pretty cool yeah the first time i played it like i i read a whole bunch about it and i played it and just, like the loading screen it, it are it's just faces faces mm-hmm. of the people from the game and uh at first i thought it was just a picture of the person it was supposed to be modeled after mm-hmm um, but then I just realized it was just a hyper detailed render of a face. And it was, I think the first time, even in the slightest that I'd been like tricked. Right. Where I like for a split second, I was like, is that a real person? And I had to sort of look and the eyes gave it away. But I was like, man, that is bizarre. Like that's getting really close. If you can just fix like these tiny little problems, I'll believe that's a real person. Right. Like my mind won't be able to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's only going to get better really quickly because that cock show is still going. Like, even though mobile gaming is getting better in terms of, like, storytelling and narrative and, like, puzzles and stuff like that, most casual gamers still just want, like, Call of Duty to look like real life. Right. 
that's all they want mm-hmm. ha- uh, the next halo game to look fucking like it's really happening even though it's like surreal alien combat yeah i guess what i was getting at is is um questioning if you have a vivid imagination does having just the story being absorbed by your brain through the written word basically binary mm-hmm. it, it could almost be thought of as like it's almost like hooking up your smartphone to your monitor like but the the brain of the smartphone is your own brain you know okay. you're comparing right. um the graphics and stuff that are able to be um, compiled and generated by a gaming system um to compared to the power of like the graphics and memories and stuff that your your mind is able to conjure mm-hmm. right you you almost wonder like whether taking a certain story and using the processing power of your brain to interpret it is more powerful than the, the console. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I know what you're getting at that uh, nothing could ever look as good as imagination. Mm-hmm. But I also think that imagination um, is a muscle. Like I yeah. think that a lot of people, especially needs like mo- post-millennials, um, have less of an active imagination than people say born like the 60s and 70s who you know tv was around and stuff like that but there's still a lot of uh making your own fun you know Mm -hmm. going and doing your thing and uh a lot of you know a lot of those mediums are lost on these new generations like this the written word is going to become pretty scarce for anyone born you know, in the 2000s. Although I find people younger than me are way more literate than people older than me. They read a lot because mm-hmm. they're always on their phones, but the the content on the internet is a lot different from, like, the content in a book, right? And ha- even though, you know, ebooks and audiobooks are, like, pretty popular, they're still popular amongst, like, a much older generation. I don't yeah. think you'd find really high sales figures among, like, 14-year-olds. And you have to remember, like, people born in 2000 are 14 this year. Right. You know, they're entering their their sort of like relevant phase where for the next 10, 15 years of their life, they're going to be part of like the trend setting youth. Mm. And they're like what they like. Completely autistic, completely secular, completely cold blooded when it comes to wanting to cut the benefits of us old people. Yeah. And and just completely driven by the technology that they've grown up uh, accustomed with. Right. Like anyone born in 2000, by the time that they were now 14, smartphones and tablets and like super high speed internet are just like commonplace and almost expected like of course everybody's got a smartphone and at that age you'd be remit not to like remit like not to have a smartphone and the old school approach to high school makes no sense at all like the millennial kids that know that the internet is always on and they can access information they don't have any interest in wanting to take memorization tests and stuff at school they're like what the fuck is this for yeah it's it's a completely different um thought process that when you know that the answer to every question is just like a quick type away or now with like you know voice searching just like asking asking uh the hitchhiker's guide more or less Mm -hmm. you know uh talking to the main computer why why retain anything through like force of memory right Mm -hmm. like just force of memory learning why does that have any bearing when you can just always get the answer and what a great habit because if you look back at um, scientists and the way that they used to do things in the old school they never like to speculate you know if you ask them a question that they don't know they're like okay let's look at the data let's look at the research 
And that's the habits that they're teaching the millennials is like when they don't know something, they go, I don't know. They, they load it up. They're like, oh, yeah, the war happened in 1872, yeah. you know, and they don't bullshit. Right. Like in the old era of experts and encyclopedias and an awkward spread of information, um, you you had a lot of room for people who were bullshit artists. Yeah. You know, they have credentials. So you believe, you know, Sam, what whatever Ph.D. when he comes on CBS and tells you about his interpretation of why the war is happening. But um, nobody's going to bother. You don't have to really worry about anybody fact-checking that too well because you'd have to go to this library and read this document. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of um, faith that was put into experts to 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 pass on what you uh, believed was, like, an accurate assessment of whatever the problem was. Yeah. And now what's crazy is that people are just in the habit of being completely skeptical about what they hear on television or what they hear somebody bullshitting about. And instead, you know, you just need to pull out the, the smartphone and five seconds later you can find out, oh, yeah, that is an urban legend. Oh, yeah, that was debunked. See, the the thing that you're telling me is a conspiracy theory. Looked it up on Snopes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... And as that, as that, like, that access to information gets a little more elegant, because right now, again, it's still something like Google, even as much as it's grown and become, like, a multifaceted search engine, it's still based on something that was come up with in, like, 1997. Mm. You know, it's still based on this sort of, like, search engine uh, result-based knowledge that's not perfect. You're still, uh, it's subject to, um, to sort of, rigging of information Mm -hmm. where certain things come up before maybe the answer that you actually want just because they're visited more often or they've been like you know google bombed to be the highest result right um something that like you know when uh the internet sort of got together and made it so when you typed in miserable failure it went to george w bush's yeah that kind of thing it's funny but it also sort of perverts the access to information because then you're able to sort of rig the system so that the real answer is not coming up first. Mm-hmm. And until that's sort of figured out and maybe resembles something a little more like Wolfram Alpha, whereas instead of getting web page results and referential material, it's taking all of the information and it just builds an answer for you mm-hmm. and really like tells you what you're looking to know rather than giving you a bunch of related results and like hoping that you'll find what you're looking for. There's something super old school about people um, rigging Google to to find George W. Bush when you search for miserable failure because um, it's a lot like the old system of gods back in the the ancient times, right? Where when you wanted to describe um, somebody who's like festive, you compared them to Pan or whatever, you know, it's like some sort of ultimate epitome of whatever the subject was. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, it's kind of, kind of psychedelic that, that well, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Like neat, but it's, <laughs> but you know, now you have things like, you know, all, if you, the auto search um, on Google it's all rigged. So, like, if you type in "Why do women?" like all the first like five or six autocompletes will just be completely offensive, and it's someone on 4chan or Reddit who's like made a campaign to get it that way. Right. And that sort that element of Google and sort of like the ad-driven search results need to go to make this access to like the summation of human knowledge truly complete and like unadulterated. Mm-hmm. And that's what these like post millennials are going to be striving for like anybody born into this who's going to want their information as they mature out of their teen years and become adults who need like important information and need it 
to be like concise and accurate, yeah. they're going to help mold the internet into something that more resembles like a professional playing field rather than this like infancy wild west internet that we've had for the past like 15 years. Yeah. It's gotten better, but it's still not perfect. It's still very like just crazy. The the things you can do with the internet and the way the internet is presented is still like kind of clunky and kind of awkward and mm-hmm. Well, I think what what's kind of going on is that there's still a lot of people that are trying to use they're trying to filter that tr- massive amount of traffic on the internet in their own directions for their own yeah. selfish ways, their own selfish means. And um, the internet doesn't like that. The, the thing that people keep on um, making the mistake of is that they always compare the internet to cable television or they'll compare the internet to this or blank, blank, blank. It's blank. not a marketing tool, and not like that. At its core, all it is is a connection machine. Yeah. And it gets more and more efficient at connecting people as time goes by. And what it'll do is it'll allow you to have a lot of power and a lot of influence for a while, as long as you don't get in the way of the connections. But as soon as you start trying to monetize it or like fuck with the amount of friends that somebody can have on their network, the network shifts and it's like an immune system reaction. It's like, get rid of Facebook, get rid of this, get rid of that. Yeah. It's, 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 it's trying to control the amount of networking too much it needs to be eliminated yeah there's there's a there's a lot there's a problem with the way that like monetizing the internet and uh you know it's just you see something like ad blocker and like the increased use of ad blocker because it got so offensive how many ads i had to watch on youtube Mm -hmm. if you take ad blocker off and you go on youtube and you just try and do like it's fucking amazing Mm -hmm. almost Every single time I'd watch a video, I'd get a big long ad, and like they're not just fifteen seconds anymore. A lot and they of they don't are, bother to curate it for your specific taste, no, right? I'm it's just fucking dryer sheet ads and stuff. It's like just a, a complete barrage of bullshit, just the same way TV would be. And I'm surprised there hasn't already been an exodus from YouTube, but I do understand like it's the most widely used. What else is there? There's for nothing video. else exactly. So they're ne- Daily Motion, I guess. Yeah, but even that's still like it. It look feels low rent compared mm-hmm. to like the streaming capability and speed of. YouTube. You know what Elias Schwartz said? What he thinks that it's all gonna be, uh, it's all gonna go decentralized next. He thinks that everything is gonna be BitTorrent, so like yeah. they can do a, a social network or a Twitter feed type of thing, but there's no central server. Like the network is divided up like Bitcoin, where you have bits and pieces of what everybody needs and if i want to see your new photos or your new text or whatever i just add you to my BitTorrent feed and it, it BitTorrents whatever information that you're adding to the thing to my computer yeah. and then it assembles on my computer as a page or a blog or whatever i yeah. think that that's really uh, an interesting take yeah i've always wondered because there's a cert- there's like a there's an element to the internet and the way that like uh the cable companies and the telephone companies and satellite companies dictate the control of the internet like they're responsible for upgrading the speeds. Um, but as all this technology has been evolving, the ability to create ad hoc networks between just wireless routers and mm-hmm. as wireless routers get more powerful, the idea sort of surfaced that you could create an inner uh, city network connection so long as everyone was playing ball. Like yeah, if everyone exactly. set their Wi-Fi modem to be an ad hoc network and everyone was connecting in a big long line then you wouldn't need to rely on the cable companies and if you could make that sort of ad hoc connection big enough 
then it would just be a free-for-all internet. And oddly, it's safer because if you've got hundreds of strangers every day using your internet connection, there's nothing to implicate you in file sharing charges or um, if they were to tap your phone, it's mostly immiscible because um, it's all just data from different users flying around. Yeah, and, you know, I've tried to envision the way that people could, like, sort of pull it off of, like, hosting the internet from like one area and just having that Wi-Fi signal be spread and spread through all these different daisy chain all daisy chains. You know, you could just like put them on all the telephone poles. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just we really should start breaking our connection to companies like Rogers and Bell because they really don't have the spread of information or like freedom of connection in mind. They're yeah. just they're just there to profit. It's a siphon. It's fucking insane mm-hmm. how much they get away with, the kind of bullshit they get away with, and how, like, bad our internet connections are compared to places that, like, you know, we would scoff at as not being first world nations. Mm-hmm. It's funny, and that's, it's, in, in I would, I would say the internet is as important a resource as um, having food at this point, because the access to information is sort of like agriculture and the access to, like, you know, better life and, like, better work, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's something that everyone deserves to have and everyone should have like e- free and easy access to. Mm-hmm. It's been proposed, but it's never been pulled off. Branson wanted to do it. I, th- um, I think it's inevitable. I think that um, it's interesting to look at the evolution of the economy from the point of view of gatekeepers, right? Yeah. Because it's always the gatekeepers that end up being that 1%, that aristocracy, whatever you want to label it. Yeah. Um, in, and in different areas, it's different um, gatekeepers, right? Like, so if... You're um, living in our uh, current time, the gatekeepers of the banks, right? That's where all of the money is flowing through for everything that we do. So whoever's controlling that gate can siphon off a lot of money for themselves. Mm. Um, But what's remarkable about the internet is it's decentralizing that like even further. Everything is being broken up into smaller and smaller chunks Mm -hmm. to the point where um, transistors can replace all of the gatekeepers and then you got something crazy like BitTorrent, which is just a decentralized network and you can pass money through that and there's no user fees yeah you know they're trying really hard to fight against bitcoin just arresting people and trying to take down all these like dark tour mm-hmm. sites it's but not gonna work no it's and it's only gonna make people more clever about how they execute these these networks right like something's gonna come along to even probably replace the tour Mm-hmm. internet and be even more decentralized and encrypted and hard to trace and then like you know things like the silk road you can fight as hard as you want against it and try and fight drug trafficking and all these like really crazy ideas but there are criminals out there who are desperate enough and who are like determined enough to utilize the internet for their trade right like everybody's getting a piece of the internet why and not the criminal underworld i don't know uh what the statistics are surrounding this but as deviant behavior becomes more mainstream because people can learn about like smoking joints or doing heroin or um, firing guns in, a, in an easier, more fluid way now than ever before. Yeah. It's um, it becomes there's becomes a political tipping point where suddenly the the consensus of the city is that the culture has changed. And it's harder to argue for the police to say we need another billion dollar raise this year to buy more paramilitary equipment because there's too many potheads. Suddenly, if the whole city's full of potheads from these ideas spreading, um, the defense forces trying to like shut down the progress. Yeah, they don't have as much 
uh, ground to stand on, right? Like they don't have funding or, or political support to do this, the, the stuff, the policing. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty strange, strange idea. Just that, uh, you know, the you way see. you think before stuff like the anarchist cookbook popping up on the internet was like such a big deal when I was a kid, right? Right. Like you get you first got like Napster or Kazaa, and uh, you know text files like text replications of the anarchist cookbook being passed yeah. around and you're almost like kind of afraid to download it because even back then back when like napster is first coming out there was always sort of the thought that like maybe there's someone watching what i'm right. doing on the internet the internet police yeah there might be like you know some s- clandestine company watching what i'm doing and like report me to the authorities if right. i download this book and you do it anyways and you sort of you, you learn about these things but i think that that access to information also um, it teaches, but it educates in a way that it discourages as well, right? Because you look at all of these things and you look at the difficulty of like how hard it is to actually build a bomb and how dangerous it is, how many like warnings, and you're just like, yeah, that's cool information to know, but I'm definitely never going to use that in any situation. Like, I don't need to know that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for someone to be able to actually search up heroin use, for instance, like you mentioned, um, instead of just the the glamorous way in which a junkie might describe it to them when they're right. like hanging out at a party, they can actually get like a really thorough lesson on what heroin is, how it's like good and bad, and like mm-hmm. you know what people have been on it, what people have died from it, like mm-hmm. what f- famous pop icons that they love have been affected by and the it. circumstances um, that surrounded things like people throwing their lives away um, with the drug. And how you can see it in a much more human um, explanation. Like, um, once seeing uh, Kurt Cobain's uh, death, like, once you understand the history of um, back pain and, like, stomach ailments and stuff that he was having. Yeah. And how miserable he was, um, it makes a lot more sense that he'd get hooked on okay heroin and eventually kill himself because you understand more the human side of it yeah it's not just this glamorous rock star who like made a bunch of money and was like all fucked up on horse Mm -hmm. and then died young yeah by accident yeah that that like kind of takes takes that out of it and shows the reality of like no this is just a troubled sick guy who ended up doing like the most addictive thing he could possibly get his hands on Mm -hmm. and it ruined his life like it completely ruined his life and future and like as good as a musician as he was when he was all fucked up think about what he had in him otherwise and like you know how how much more he could have contributed to the music scene and it just it really sucks someone like philip seymour hoffman one of the greatest fucking actors of our time dies with a syringe in his arm Mm -hmm. um for for what Right, like it. it he was one in of some the, sort of pain. One yeah. of the most beautiful actors, just like Synecdoche, brought fucking tears to my eyes, and he dies for pretty much nothing. Mm-hmm. Mitch Hedberg, Shannon Hoon, mm-hmm. like all these people who died, who are just geniuses, and it didn't come from the heroin. It's not like the heroin made them geniuses. It's just that um, the heroin made them uninhibited. Or you know? it, it might have been. I always think of those people as being maybe hypersensitive. Like the life is hard for anybody, but it seems like if you have the right kind of senses and the right kind of sensitivity, it can be a really sad place to, to follow closely what goes on in the world. And I think a lot of these actors, they're able to be um, so talented at um, 
imitating people because of that high level of empathy. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like a double-edged sword because it makes it hard to like get through life when they're that sensitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That tuned in. It's uh. I just the thing that I think is the biggest shame is if those drugs had been legal, if there had been like safe injection sites and no stigma associated, you'd hope that somebody like Philip Seymour Hoffman would be able to go to a clinic and have their drug of choice or whatever administered properly, you know, and had like medical staff if there was a problem to be on scene. It's an interesting, interesting thought. I've read about that kind of stuff before where, you know, just the proposal that drugs in general not be illegal and like if you really want to do them at least you do them in the safest and like cleanest way possible right um and maybe even with therapists on the scene and stuff saying like why are you back again today like why do you want to be stoned all the time like what's going on with your your life that you've made that choice people would never go for it because the addictive personality is one that's really hard to combat Mm -hmm. like i feel like some people have it in them where you know I've, I've had friends where just about everything they try becomes like the best thing ever for a little while and it's really like you know it becomes a, a, a problem pretty quickly right because good times are fun and so you always kind of want to be in whatever good time mode you think is the best one now and so they just everything they get their hands on ends up being a, a minor problem for them or a major problem mm-hmm and uh, I think I don't know what what's what that comes from, whether or not that's a parenting issue or just some sort of chemical problem mm-hmm. in the brain, you know, some sort of imbalance in the brain that just makes um, the addiction to good times. I feel like that's it. I feel like people just getting so addicted to feeling good and hate feeling yeah, that hypersensitivity, like the feeling mm-hmm. bad is just so terrible for Louis them. Lucy K had an interesting interview on The Tonight Show a few months ago where he was talking about listening to stuff on the radio as a way to avoid those silences where his mind starts to act up and he feels depressed. Yeah. So he, and he was describing driving in his car and having like this severe, like uh, existential crisis kind of creep up in the back of his head where he's just like, Oh God, you know, life is meaningless. We're floating around through space, blah, blah, blah. I've got this mortgage. I've got this, you know, two kids I got to support. I don't know if my comedy's going anywhere. Those kinds of like awful um, debates that happen in your head when things get too quiet. Yeah. And his only escape was to like have constant activity or background music to like try to um, drown out that voice. Yeah. And he turned on the radio and he was like, uh, he heard the, 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 the whining howl of like Bruce Springsteen singing some, you know, I don't probably jungle land or something. He's like, imitating. He's like, and he's like, that was the worst song to hear at that moment because it, it drove him even further down that existential hole. Yeah. You know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) That's yes. 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 I, yes. Yes. I know that that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes <laughs> that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving 
And then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really say it's like jungle. What the one's the one? Jungle. Jungle Land. Jungle. This one where he goes, Hurry! and he sounds far away. You know, it's like that's that's, that's, half, that's half of them. Yeah, that's a lot of them. I don't know. I I kind of feel like one thing that would be great about having. Uh, drugs administered in a health um, situation is that at least you might have access to an alpha, like somebody who can assess like what's going on in your quiet times and in your like regular life that you constantly need to obliterate it or change your consciousness to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Like what what's what's happening in those quiet times that's making you constantly seek out the party or, or whatever like in from the point of view of the person you're describing where yeah they need the good times like what's wrong with the the not the regular times when you just sometimes you just want to sit and watch tv or make a phone call or yeah i i don't know there's i feel i feel like sometimes i feel that way too though when i'm when things get really quiet or when i have a lot like I, I like quiet time in general like if you when you do when you live in the city and you go to a lot of shows and just like work a lot um, the actual like just sitting down for a long time being able to think is really helpful but sometimes in in those like short quiet periods in between activity I get that that really haunting feeling of, mm -hmm. like oh god there's like there's no point in any of this and I wish I could be doing this I wish I could be doing that or like I don't like the city anymore and mm -hmm. I just uh, try my best to fight that but I, I probably have like the whole like weed smoking thing for me is just a really good like quieting of that impulse that doesn't affect my my day in any other way. Yeah. I'm just like you know, smoke a bit of weed and the that sort of doubt in life kind of goes away. I stop thinking about it and start thinking about you know, The Simpsons and Alan Moore blames, potato chips. Uh, blames advertising as being like the corrupting influence that takes a lot of artists and channels them into making work that is um, completely. Um, against the spirit of art mm -hmm. like Alan Moore always thinks of art and the artist as the the shamans of the tribe right the people who were responsible for um, enlivening the the spirit and the culture of their their given family network yeah to um, inspire the young at like the great things that were possible in life to console the depressed about all of the trials and tribulations and how that makes life more exciting and interesting. Yeah. All of those principles and stuff were supposed to be conveyed through artwork and culture and dance and music and, and stuff. Yeah. And Alan Moore blames the rise of advertising for sucking a lot of the talent um, from our born artists into um, corrupted mediums like um, Javex commercials or, Things that are designed to make you a passive consumer instead of being, like, alive and awake and, and human. Yeah. Well, that's why, like, this sort of period of entertainment is definitely not what you consider to be, like, a renaissance time. Mm -hmm. Because they're, 
there's like counterculture art and there's art that sort of induces the idea that you know there's something better and there's like something more complicated than all of this but uh i don't know i think too many people are pacified Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pacified people who don't give a shit about art. They don't give a shit about, like, having to work too hard at finding new music. I mean, it's still, like, that radio um, radio ideology just press play. still exists. Yeah, just even though even the way I'm some... I'm guilty of that. Yeah. Sometimes when I go on Spotify or whatever, I'm like, God damn it, why can't there be a station of just all the good stuff? Like, why is this so... Songs is that same way where songs is just like you type in a band that you like, sort of like Pandora. You just type in a band that you like or you type like you choose a list. It'll be like the worst songs from the Grammys, like <laughs> the worst, the worst Grammy winners or like Canadian rock or just like East Coast tunes and all these different playlists. Great will be big like, C channel. Yeah, there'll be like h- dummies. hundreds of songs. It'll just shuffle it for you and play it in an infinite loop or and then when it's done it'll just pass you off onto the cl- most closely related thing after that song and you just you have no ch- real choice of what you're going to listen to mm-hmm. and that's what some people want they don't want to have to sit there and think of oh do i want to listen to pavement right now or do i want and it's all to like uh, the algorithm that controls netflix too right where it's not quite clever enough it'll kind of peg you as a certain demographic and then it'll start serving you all these movies that you're like yeah, I don't know. Maybe I feel like watching a cage match. Because you watched X-Files, we recommend you watch How High. <laughs> <laughs> I Seriously, like my Netflix was like that. It was the mix of stuff I watched. I would get the weirdest suggestions, but it would, re- it would relate them to the, the most odd things. Like because you watched Twin Peaks, we recommend King of the Hill. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And how do you know that I like both of those things? Like, yeah, you're right. I do like King of the Hill and I will watch that, but I don't know how you drew that conclusion from the fact that I watched a David Lynch program. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost no similarity in my mind other than the fact that it's like kind of small town America. But that's that seems too specific for Netflix to figure out. Like Netflix doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know. I don't know it what's might. going on in the Netflix I mean, database. There's a lot of Brendans out there. There's a lot of Jessies out there. And if enough of them have joined the network, they might have a whole psychological profile built up for. There's there's such potential in just shaping content for people through Netflix. Like if everybody switched over to Netflix, which is slowly happening, mm-hmm. people aren't going to pay sixty bucks for cable or satellite. Just fucking get Netflix. They update it. If they update it more often, there'll be no question. Everyone yeah. will switch over because it's eight bucks a month for just ever-changing content at your fingertips. They just use that database to sculpt the content for the next year and just like, oh, everyone was watching X-Files when we put it on Netflix. So clearly, they either want more David Duchovny or they want another show that is sort of this like monster of the week premise and they want it to be sort of campy and blah, blah, blah. And like, look at all the other popular programs and then just hire people to write that show. Have they opened it up to the world yet? Like, can you, can you make your own Netflix channel? Are they even, is that even in the pipe? What do you mean? Cause I imagine like we were talking about YouTube's overwhelming dominance, right? Right. You wonder if Netflix opened up a section where you could start your own channel and, Based on the number content. of like plays and stuff, they give you a bit of revenue from the, the subscription fees. And it could be a separate area that you can turn off if you're not interested in it. 
but yeah. you just have people posting things and maybe there's a criteria where it's not designed to be YouTube. Like you can't just start up a show where you're just talking about bullshit in front of your webcam. It's more meant it for like actual narrative. Like, yeah. You got to do like either a documentary or a web show. Yeah. Um, and you can have it on your Netflix channel. And if you, if it becomes popular, then they'll make you a, a partner and they'll start paying you. Yeah. And there's a, there's a potential for a filtration there too, because the people who are one people who pay for Netflix, right? So they're paying for that subscription they're they're bound to be more critical because they've given money over to this subscription whereas youtube is free so a bunch of random bullshit can exist on youtube and people just ignore it because they're getting that service for free mm -hmm. but if people are putting money into service even a few dollars yeah. then they're going to be much more critical than they would be on youtube and so if people were posting content they could almost treat it the way that Newgrounds used to do things. I don't know if you remember how Newgrounds was set up. I don't know Newgrounds. Newgrounds was uh, a flash animation portal mm. in the late 90s, like early 2000s. That was really hyper popular. You could just post flash games and animations. It was sort of known for posting a lot of crude and like rude and R-rated stuff and like nudie games and shit like that. But there was hundreds and thousands of flash animations. And the way it would work is that in the first like couple hours of that animation being posted, the community was so active that if it received so many like low votes under a certain like average, it would just delete it. Mm. If it wasn't good enough in the first couple hours, if it didn't get enough views, it just got obliterated from the server so they didn't have to host anymore. Oh, that's right. And then something else came up. So you could do the same thing where, with a Netflix portal where people are submitting their own original content. And then if it gets... Hold on a second. Imagine how depressed you'd be if you got swept out with the trash every month they're like no hits again but <laughs> but that would be that would be a drive and it would also be sort of a wake-up call for people who are grasping at a career that isn't meant for them because there are a lot of people based on like youtube fame that think they should be these big like youtube like video celebrities and like these personalities who are just like never gonna really gain any sort of notoriety or popularity yeah and that sort of more aggressive rating system where like actual low votes from a paying customer base not just like random people but people who are like a bit more decisive about what they want uh that would it's kind of like when people go on american idol mm -hmm. when these people go on american idol and they sing and simon is just like why why are you here i'm not trying <laughs> i'm not trying to be rude but you can't sing at all and there's probably something else that you're good at you should go do that right like figure it figure out what you're good at because you tried singing and this is not working you're not going to get famous and that's just sort of like the wake-up call that i think certain people need they need like a just a big wake-up call of just saying like you know you know what I, i'm really sorry and like i don't want to hurt your feelings but you're just not very good at this maybe no one's ever told you um, and maybe this sounds like harsh, but there's probably a talent that you have that you're not drawing on right now. Right. Um, but you know what I find a lot of times there's there's artists that the reason that they're underperforming is because they're secretly not as passionate about the thing as they think they are. You know right. what I mean? They're not deep, digging deep enough. They're not being honest enough in, in their writing and in their observations they're still kind of holding back and they're still fibbing a little bit, you know, right. and you're like your writing would get much better. Your the problem with your writing is not your, your, uh, your grammar or your, um, ability to use a thesaurus. Yeah. It's like, there's a lot of beautiful stuff that's been written with a grade four, grade five vocabulary. Yeah. The problem with this material is that you're not being honest enough. Like everybody's life has tragedies and has triumphs and has funny moments and things. 
the difference between writers and creators that I think break through and have a lot of success is that they're able to be really, really honest and observant because like how fucking weird is it when you go and you see the same event as everybody else, but the people you were standing beside didn't even notice the event happen. Like something crazy, like somebody almost chokes to death. Somebody, you know, um, there's a fist fight. There's, there's a, uh, a fire or whatever, and there's people who are completely oblivious to it. They just Two don't people care, can yeah. go through the same experience, and the storyteller will come away with this nuanced, crazy, interesting um, metaphor. Yeah, for, like a snapshot of the of environment. The world, yeah, right. And somebody else will just be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I went to the party; it was pretty boring. Some asshole set the great drapes on fire. You know, completely yeah. flat and boring. Yeah, completely uh, losing the the sort of drama and uh and like beauty of every kind of weird moment Mm -hmm. i feel like that's something that i've always really appreciated about life is that the most subtle moments to me tend to be the most profound in the long run where just a weird encounter i have on the bus with someone late at night uh it just sticks with me a Mm -hmm. lot longer than than most other things that happened to me yeah. and that nobody else on the train really like gave a shit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, t- I don't know. I just tend to take those things in and really like think about them. And I'm, I'm always like everything becomes this sort of like big narrative, part of like a big narrative of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love the storyteller. And how weird it is when um, somebody falls into that rut where they can't see any um, sublimeness in the regular moments like you you hear somebody complain at their job or whatever about you know oh you know there's so many bugs in this office why can't they do something about it it's totally gross then on the other hand you think oh you know man you gotta see how fucking cool those house centipedes are they're the apex predator the office they eat all the bed bugs they eat all the fleas that might bite us you know, they're pretty helpful, blah, blah, blah. Once you start like looking at every moment and analyzing it and trying to, to see the interest in it, yeah. it's, a, it's a much more interesting and engaging perception and a, a way to live rather than like the, the cynical side where everything is just boring. Everything is not the way I want it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I've come to I've come to accept pretty early on in my life. I sort of felt this way. And I think it, a lot of it has to do with being just such a sci-fi nerd growing up reading a lot of like Asimov and like watching tons of Star Trek. Um, I really, I just started understanding the, the insignificance of my life at a very early mm. age where I was just like, I, yeah, I'm not much of what I do is going to influence anybody else in a way that's like, you know, obvious. And I'm I always have that feeling in the back of my mind where it's just like, you know, I'm going to die someday. could be pretty soon. And when I'm gone, like people might mourn for a little while, but then once it's over, it's over. And so I don't know. I, I just never, I never sit around and sort of like think of like, Oh, I wish things were better for me. Or I just like, I wish that I could like do all of these extravagant things or like make all of these changes or be like a big power player. Yeah. Cause in the long run, it's just like, I'd rather just enjoy the moment and like sort of enjoy the nuance of like the simple things going on around me. Like the entire world is just like huge, beautiful mass of activity. That's just so strange and unpredictable. Everything that's happening is just like, you know, just any, any thought of technology and the way that it's like moving and all these new things that are coming out in medicine. Every time it happens, it, it gets swept under the rug. People go talk about it for a day mm-hmm. and then stop thinking about it. But it's like people even just forget about how magnificent it is to fucking fly in an airplane. Yeah. You know, or have sex. 
or have sex or just like just the fact that our bodies our bodies and everything that like we've accomplished and especially what we've accomplished in a hundred years and just how different it was in the 1940s like this time in the 1940s there was just crazy world war and people were killing each other and there was like not much focus on and like any sort of industrial progress no certainty that the war would ever end yeah and now just the the mass differences in our lives like two generations removed and these kids have no idea about what that could feel like nor do we like even the next generation we got a sort of a an impression of it from our parents Mm -hmm. and our grandparents they say war skips a generation yeah but we we didn't really we haven't uh, been through that kind of really like terrifying human conflict not yet man once that fucking starship troopers meteor hits the planet we're all (laughs) we're all suiting up oh yeah 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 yeah. i don't know it's join today there the world is changing and the way conflict works is changing i don't i don't know what our big like generational moment is going to be this like defining change but feels like it's just going to be in the technology i feel like something's on the horizon there's all this like boiling in technology and like tablets and smartphones like just making so many leaps and bounds there's something around the corner that's going to be this big change the way mm-hmm. that world war ii was a change and the way that like going to space was a change yeah. every, every generation has had its like really significant defining moment and while we've had important ones and really like dramatic ones i don't know that we've had that all-encompassing life-changing moment yet well i think what 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 feels like the next step to me is the internetification of the real world yeah like where you start to see um open world real life things mirror the kinds of like rapid expression and creativity that you see commonly in like um like uh fucking um mine minecraft yeah like where you start to see crowdfunded projects for public art and buildings and institutions spreading up quickly sprouting up quickly all over your city yeah and having like a centralized government more and more puzzled as to like why they don't have influence anymore and like falling voter rates and things to the point where people don't ever have to have an election to decide if they're going to dissolve the government. It goes away by atrophy. Yeah. Just from a lack of interest and a lack of ability to implement any real change. That's it's really interesting, especially in the, the, the thought of Minecraft and you look at, you know, the older generation loves Minecraft, but if you look at the kids and the way they play it and how into it they are and the sort of creativity that it inspires and the community that like the kind of cooperative building and you learn there's like social skills to be learned in Minecraft. And when you have this open world and people can abuse your stuff yeah, and you can abuse their stuff back, there's... Uh, almost in a better way than school teaches it, you sort of learn how to respect someone else's creation and how to admire and learn from someone else's building. Yeah. And you have the ability to just like start over as many times as you want and like rebuild um, things for that generation. Things for that generation um, are going to be looser. They're just going to be more loosely defined. They're not going to be so afraid of failure or redesigning something or like, you know, just going back on their ideas and rethinking them in the way that now, you know, some of us are guilty of once we think we're right. And once we think we have the right idea about something or the right design for something, we, we, we shut down and we stop trying to redesign it because we, we treat it so preciously. Mm -hmm. And Um, they get afraid of that 
initial learning curve where everybody feels the same way about learning a new skill or a new idea. It's hard at first and it's awkward and your brain fights you. But if you just relax into it and you make a habit of learning something every day, that resistance gets a little bit less each time. Yeah. Until you're steeled against it. Yeah, it's like the Lego generation had it too where anyone who played with Lego when they were a kid, you can you can kind of tell, you can see the way their eyes light up when they talk about Lego because it is that that infinite freedom to build something, have it destroyed and not not be intimidated by rebuilding it or building something new. Um, and that's that's a really important um, trait for a generation to have, to have that sort mm-hmm. of fluidity with ideas and the cooperation to not be so precious with your one idea that you can't let someone else improve on it. I think that's something uh, that previous generations have had a lot of trouble with too is the idea of patents and mm-hmm. copyrights and like ownership of an credit. idea and credit. Yeah. You know, people get together and this part of the Id- the idea is mine. Right. And like I came up with that and I wrote that part of the song and I wrote that part of the movie and like that was my idea, my idea, my idea, my idea and like when someone else suggests like, oh, it could be better this way, you get defensive because mm-hmm. it's the instinct of like, oh, that's my property and so I'm going to defend it from you, changing it because I fear change. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the the next generations are going to feel that way, um, especially the more of them are into something open world, sandbox, and cooperative like Minecraft and um, having social media and networking and the internet at their grasp from the earliest possible social interaction. From- and the idea of the feed being the content, the idea of the feed being the point. Like once you get into um, having blogs be your favorite thing, it's important that that data keep coming at you. Yeah. And the only way that it works is to have everybody contributing. Yeah. So in a way, like it's a necessary kind of step for people to take. If they want the feed to be better, you have to encourage other people to be making stuff. It's like, yeah, oh, that was cool. Come give me more cool art. Give me more ideas. And you can see how that works on YouTube where someone who has a, a web series and may like start kind of faltering and making it and they get an outpouring of support of just like, oh, where's where are the, you? Where's yeah. the new episode? It it sort of motivates the lazy where someone's been sitting around and like, you know, kind of half coming up with ideas and they get an influx of comments saying like, it's been two weeks since the last episode. Like, what are you doing, man? Are you on vacation? Are you okay? And like people sort of encouraging and and getting mad and getting mad was a big fan of you look nice today and they haven't released a new episode in like six months yeah just pissed about i'm like you gotta write a letter jessica yeah they got to start hearing from their fans where they're like dudes what the fuck because most people create content you gotta start on this thing you can't just go away now you gotta show up yeah and that's why something like comedy bang bang has gone on for like almost 300 episodes now because they won't let us stop like scott ackerman has said in a couple interviews he's just like i don't really care anymore and (laughs) people are always bailing on episodes and we have good ones but we have like a lot of like kind of so-so episodes but the he can get the real dove charney now that he's (laughs) (laughs) fired but the yeah in the long run it's just the fact that so many people are listening and the advertisers are saying we're getting so many like people coming through our ad revenue, like through Comedy Bang Bang. So you got to keep doing this. He's got to listen to Howard Stern. Every time somebody leaves like a successful show, Howard Stern is always back in the television era. He's like, what a dope. Why would you leave a cash cow like that? Like Jeff Probst. Yeah. The guy who produces and, and stars on Survivor. Survivor. Yeah, yeah. 
he should never leave that show. He's making a fortune. He would have otherwise not probably had a very successful career. I don't think he's going to leave that show. No, he's having a, t- a ball. Like, I've been... He reinvents it. He has fun with the cast. Yada, yada, yada. He seems loving life. I've been li- listening to this podcast. It's uh, it's done now um, uh, on Earwolf called The Reality Show Show. <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, Sean uh, Clements and Hayes Davenport. Um, who do like a new podcast now they're really really funny mm-hmm. like i really like their comedy a lot and they just on reality show show just talk about a lot of like the sort of big reality shows it's sort of like the whole like come watch some garbage with us idea <laughs> where like we're, we're really into reality shows and we love seeing just like really shitty low-level human drama and people like we like just love the crazy people on american idol and survivor and uh listening to them talk about it and they're talking about jeff probst they had this guy on who's a, a reality show executive, and he was talking about Propes and how into the show he is. How, yeah, he looks it. And and he has like a... Th- this is probably the funniest thing I've ever heard about Survivor, but apparently for many, many seasons now, every time right before a season starts, he gets all of the contestants together, and they meet him, and they're in a room, and he plays Eminem's Lose Yourself... Cause it's all it's he, he plays it on a on a boombox and, and he doesn't he they all stand there silent and he like apparently raps the words along <laughs> and he sort of like weaves his way through all the contestants Just like, like him out. pumping them up and psyching them out being like this is your fucking moment man survival million dollars you want your million dollars you're gonna have to earn it everywhere every year inflation makes that prize a little bit less <laughs> yeah but it's it's such a beautiful concept and really like if. If so long as they have good idea men kind of working at the Survivor writing team, they'll never run out of ideas. At its best, Survivor is the best show on TV. Yeah, and when what it's they, when it's a good season, Survivor is more exciting than most stuff. What they have to do is like do a season of Survivor where it's just like Icelandic giants, mm-hmm. all the all the big strong men on one <laughs> island trying to compete, but also having that like personal drama where there's yeah. just like a bunch of four hundred pound mountains all they did a bit of that living this year. with it was beauty versus brawn versus brains oh, okay but three teams three, yeah, yeah there was there was strong people on all three there was sexy people on all three they didn't quite go all the way with it it wouldn't it wouldn't be good drama if they just completely separated all those different types of people right because you're separating mindsets if you just put all the strong people and all the brainy people together there wouldn't be that kind of personality clash that would result in the juicy reality show drama that everybody wants. Totally. You need to have brainy and brawny and beautiful all on the same team so that one is always trying to like outdo the other with their particular skill. But you know what would skill. be kind of crazy? They could have set up the game the exact same way with the really exaggerated caricatures on each team, but they have a shared campsite. So, like, you divide up into your three teams only when you're doing challenges. And the rest right. of the time, you're networking with everybody else. That with, would be really interesting. That Yeah, actually, that would really drive um, weird, like, tribal traders where mm-hmm. you could, like, almost take a dive because you have a you know that the tribes are going to come together and you're making deals with someone from the other yeah. one and just being like, oh, I'll f- I got us a meathead. I'll fucking die. I got one of the meatheads just to flip. They're on our team now. Reality sh- real. I seriously, I-, I almost wish I had cable just for those kind of reality shows because as I listen to this podcast, I'm like, fuck, some of the... You can watch them. Yeah, I know. You can watch... And I, I re- stream all this. I've started to do it. I started to watch this show that they really liked called Splash. And Spl- <laughs> Splash is, it was, uh, it's a competition 
reality show where it's like diving, like competition diving, but with celebrities. What? But the but like the, Dance with the Stars. Is yeah, dive? it's ex- competitive diving. Exactly. It's like <laughs> so, it's like Dancing with the Stars, but uh, but just the celebrities competing in this week. Stars, and Shaquille they, O'Neal. And they are str- no straight up C to D list celebrities. Like they got <laughs> they got Louis Anderson. They got. Um, He's still alive. Yeah, yeah. They got Rudy uh, Louis Anderson, and he he had to leave after the first episode because a doctor told him your body can't take your fat body can't take the impact of, of diving. diving. If you keep diving, you run the you'll risk. You'll die, of, Louis. Yeah, you'll die. And we can't have a world without you. Um, and uh, oh, they got the girl who played Rudy on the Which, Cosby how's she show. Looking? This is the funniest part, and they talk about this in the show where. All they focus on in the entire show is the fact that she's all grown up. Um, like they're, they're, Rudy, all grown up. Yeah, they they wrote a song for every celebrity, and her intro song is just like, "Damn girl, Rudy's all grown up, body's blowing up." Shots of her ass and stuff. No, she she walks in with a towel, uh, and she like walks up, and then she drops her towel, and it's like, "Damn girl," and one of the lines is, "All I gotta do is show up," and but yeah, it's. It's only it's playing on the idea that you every get, episode it does that same inter- introduction. Well, yeah, they kind of they kind of played up on the first episode when they're first introducing them, and then after that, it's a little less showy. Right. And I think maybe that side of it tested a little strangely because it was just saying like, remember that five year old girl on the Cosby Show you watched back in the nineties? Catchphrase? Did she had one? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think the Cosby Show really did catchphrases. <laughs> Except Cosby had some of his Cosby-isms. I but brought you into this world and I can take I, you I can out. take you out. Dad, make us some chocolate <laughs> cake. Claire, Rudy, Theo, <laughs> Vanessa, Lisa Bonet. Um, Damn, girl, Rudy's yeah, all grown up. The filth on reality shows is really just something to behold. Like, it's that aspect of humanity that's just otherwise useless but as a as a case study, just mm-hmm. watching a bunch of really overly dramatic, self-involved people <laughs> live live in a house and have to compete to stay in the house, uh-huh. like something like Big Brother is fucking like that horrifying beauty where you're watching it and you're just like every moment it's cringeworthy and you're like, oh my god, these people are so shallow and some of them are so sick, mm-hmm. so sick, mm-hmm. and it it's, and they're completely unaware that they've been. Uh, co-opted into this this uh, strange experiment that's going to make a lot of money for the advertisers. Yeah, and no money for them. They're being exploited. <laughs> they're total guinea pigs. Straight up exploited. Like uh, American Idol is really guilty of it. Where, like, one thing I've noticed because I started to watch like the worst of American Idol comp- compilations, all the people that were considered just like the worst additions. And uh, normally, people would say Simon Cowell is an is an asshole, mm-hmm. but he is actually most able to determine uh when someone is genuinely sick yeah. and he gives them a more um a more straight up kind of serious burst their bubble he bursts their bubble in a way that's not like making fun of them whereas randy and paula are just laughing hysterically <laughs> yeah when someone's like just singing really high and out of key and randy and paula are like covering their faces and laughing simon m- makes a point not to laugh at mentally challenged people, whereas like Paul and Randy have no problem with it. They just laugh at people who are clearly ill, right? Like not okay. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just billionaires hanging out on television, 
making fun after all of these people and most some people are able to take it and they're able to take it in a way that's mature and constructive and they say okay well I tried and they leave but most people come with overblown expectations of like going to Hollywood and making a lot of money on this fabulous singing career and it's really diluted and it's sick to laugh at them when, it's when like, you were talking about um, the reality show the meta reality 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 or whatever it was reality called? show show the reality show show I, I thought it, you were going to say it was a reality show about people who make reality shows. Oh. And I think that that would be trippy because there's always so many stories about these recruiters and stuff who go to find the contestants and they've got like questionnaires that they ask them and things deliberately to find people who have, you know, slightly narcissistic tendencies, people who are hotheads, people, all these, all these checklists that they try to put together to make a juicy season. Yeah. And they try to, they just put the elements and they shake it up and they, they hope it works. It sort of taught me a little bit about, uh, about where reality shows change too, because back in like the late eighties, early nineties, when they were first kind of coming around and MTV was sort of playing with this, like, you know, like multi-camera reality show format, the real world came around and uh, for the first couple seasons, or even just like the first season, they got a lot of sort of like educated sort of college kids who were all like sort of mild tempered and like not very crazy. So the show was like revolutionary, but it wasn't that interesting because there was not a lot of drama going on. Mm-hmm. But it's like the second or third season where it, they had the first time it was like an openly gay person and a person who had AIDS on that season and there's a lot of fire going on in the house and that turned out to be a, a huge dramatic moment on TV that was like just massive everybody watched it and it was like like wildfire it spread and then after that the idea of like oh let's only put crazy people <sighs> like we, we we can put in a few intelligent kind of witty people in there to throw it off and so that people can identify with someone but mostly fill the house with volatile possibly unbalanced people that are going to drive the interesting moments that are really going to like make people watch yeah and it's a shame because i think that the opposite would also work like if you filled the house full of people who are mildly well-read well-versed well-spoken you could have a completely uh straightforward show that's just conversations like really smart people just talking about stuff just bullshitting like we are right now yeah and i think it would be meditative and and really interesting the problem is it doesn't work in an advertising medium like television but i think it would work on online i think it would be interesting to kind of have a a sim style um online um it's been shown not really to work like when people try it and when like just normal people like i remember seeing back sort of in the mid 2000s as webcams became like super affordable like probably down to the point where they were like 30 40 bucks for a sort of low end logitech webcam mm-hmm. like a family in britain that was just sort of a normal three kid family yeah, and like yeah, a mid sized house cameras in the house they put cameras and and chat rooms in all the houses and they did like I sort mean, of a like bit a self experience that kind of like it would have the vibe of a richard linkletter movie like, yeah uh, where people, interesting people, like come to the coffee shop and they sit down and they're talking about something, and then and that you know that sort of manifests itself in certain programs, like even like comedians in cars getting coffee is mm-hmm. sort of that like you know just intelligent, not very dramatic people who are like for the most part funny, just sitting together and uh, having a conversation and having a conversation. But for the most like people want that garbage. There's a fascination with the low end of human intelligence that is hard to beat 
when you yeah, make, I mean, when you make a show about child pageantry, you're just it's dynamite, right? Yeah. There's just bound to be crazy moms and like just stupid, stupid people who have total disregard for their kids, and for whatever reason, that just pulls on something deep down in our brains. It's just like it's so entertaining. It's just proven 100% to be entertaining and that's why TV is dominated by it now. Yeah. Very rarely does a narrative show... It, this ties into what we were talking about earlier where um, it's almost like they're rebutting um, a kind of like old school classic intellectual elitism where you'd have conversations about things that were so broad that they didn't resonate with a lot of people. Like yeah. you're talking about nihilism or something and on one level, you can see that as the most important kind of conversation, but on another level, the the level of the person who loves the reality show, they're knee deep in seeing what real life is. Yeah, you know, regular people and like the daily traumas and stuff that they go through. Yeah, who's to say that that's not more powerful or more relevant? Well, than and and look people? at how it's it's sort of always existed, where even something that's like you know you could relate the the interpersonal drama. No, it's not quite as eloquent, but uh, but it's Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the way that it plays out because it's just very much like, oh, he loves her but slept with her. And, like, these people are in an argument that they can't get over. Mm-hmm. And, like, this happened and there's, like, treachery and sort of, like, behind the back, you know, like, plotting and backstabbing. It's sort of like that Shakespearean... Uh, element that drove the popularity of soap operas. But then once they realized that they could they didn't have to hire a writing team like they could have a soap opera that just played out in real life with no writing whatsoever they didn't have to really all they had to do was sort of like make the right environment like kind of stir the pot put a house together put people in that house and make some kind of twist that would get between them drive wedges between people and Mm -hmm. as long as they do that the soap opera writes itself Mm -hmm. forever Mm -hmm. and people love it they'll always consume it it's 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 sad, and a lot of people would say, oh, it's just complete garbage. And I don't it's like- think so. I think that it's a natural evolution, because now that I think about it, what's always the main criticism of bad fiction, bad games, bad whatever? It's unrealistic. So it's, it's not true. It, it's not it true. It, it, wasn't, it didn't ring true. It's like a bad joke, where it's yeah. like, uh, those were words in a, in a certain pacing, but it didn't strike me as being relevant or teach me anything about life. Yeah. And from that kind of point of view, maybe reality shows are a better form or a more advanced form of art. Like you're actually seeing the slices of real life. It's um, straight points. And I do see the side of it too, that like many reality shows have fallen, um, fallen ill with, um, the sh- the sort of shaping and molding of the situation, right? Like Survivor is only real in a sense that the people who think they're going to get famous through Survivor are real. Mm-hmm. And everything that's sort of happening on it, and even a lot of like the drama between people is cut together in a way and is f- formulated into a way that makes it less real. Yeah, it's, there it's, is editing going on that manufactures certain things. But despite that, it is still it's a more real piece of it than something like a sitcom. It, like any sitcom from the 80s until now, like the the best ones um, 
don't feel real at all. There's mm-hmm. no reality to them, right? Like the the best, like Seinfeld, and even like people who like Friends. Like the things are just so outlandish, and the way that people react to each other is just too sculpted. Yeah, there's no like actual slice of reality where like you can still argue that in Survivor some of that is real, and the yeah. way people hate each other or love each other and like kind of support each other is a real impulse that mm-hmm. you're seeing. You know, it's it's just not. It, not presented in a complete unbiased yeah. medium. So interesting that the internet is is uh, accelerating all of these trends to the point where you wonder if there'll ever come a day where when someone wants to see the dark side of life, they watch a documentary like The Act of Killing or they watch a YouTube feed from Death Row or, you know, they tap into like the real source these are real monsters or these are real saints or these are real heroes. Yeah. And it's not an actor pretending to be those person, people and places. You see the actual footage of the actual events and then you hear testimony from real people. Yeah. That's, you know, in a way that that, that's much more genuine and more powerful than um, the old paradigm. I think now that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just interesting the way, like, can you that, imagine it's possible now with the amount of like podcasts and YouTube and reality shows and documentaries out there that there could be a person who doesn't have any uh, touch with narrative drama or the concept of that, that there are these things called actors and there's these things called writers and they sit down at a typewriter and they come up with a story and then they have actors recite the lines and pretend to act it out. Yeah. I can imagine that becoming old fashioned to the point where like there's a whole generation that comes up um, so immersed in reality that they find that whole ritual to be really stupid. Yeah. Well, I mean, so if you think about some of the t- television shows that became most popular um, that were still sort of based on this like narrative structure, something like cops, right? Or, like the world's scariest blanks or like most mm-hmm. violent blanks um, that becomes sort of like, you know, the YouTube culture and the world star hip-hops and, like, the Daily Motions and the BuzzFeed and all this blah, 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 blah. All these, like, you know, one-off videos, all these slices of reality are way more popular than, you know, these... Like, something like that will get millions and millions and millions of views in a few days. Some kind of crazy car crash or miraculous Mm -hmm. save or blah, blah, blah will just become wildfire viral... Versus for a few something days. like a contrived music video or whatever that yeah. you may have spent so much time on, but people don't care because it hasn't hit like one of those primal and chords. And all, all it takes is timing of footage, right? Like mm-hmm. all you need is just to be around when that happens with your smartphone out. And like, you know, people are afraid of Google Glass and blah, 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 blah. But one thing that they, you could sort of sell on people for Google Glass is think about how many more incredible videos are going to come out on the internet from a point of view Mm -hmm. that are like you know higher quality like you're going to see crazy car crashes and people fighting at the clubs and all these things that are like wildfire viral on world star hip-hop boring things like how interesting would it be to just see through the eyes of um you know john malkovich or whatever for the for the day or yeah black's feed you know you get to you go to the job you go home you that sort of voyeurism is definitely popular, and people also like the self voyeuristic um, impulse to record things you're doing from like a first person's perspective 
and then later on in life to be able to like relive right. whole That's chunks trippy. of your life mm-hmm. is for, not from like a from this can you weird... imagine you could watch your first date over again or like the the you relive the moment where you met a woman that you were going to be with for seven years or how like psychedelic and crazy that would be. And also, also how, how it would, um, how it would save you from your own biased, um, perverting of that memory. Mm -hmm. We're like after seven years of being with the same person, arrogant, there, there might, there might be certain aspects of the relationship that have soured you on this person. But if you were able to go back and sort of not from a, not from like a photographic point of view, but from an actual, like, uh, experience experience point of view mm-hmm. from this first person sort of reliving of it and watch the whole thing sort of unfold it might you know help remind you of why you love this person and mm-hmm. why you were initially attracted to this person it supersedes your brain's ability to warp your memory of an occurrence to sort of fit the um the confirmation bias you have about that person yeah you know, you, you, you feel that way now, but just remember how you felt three years ago when you, like, met each other for the first time. Whoa, creepy. The door just opened all on its Brr. own. Do you want to get uh, some water? Yeah, let's take a little breaky-poo. Breaky time. Whoop. Part two. Part two, back from the break. Back from the break. Dr. Wiley music. Dr. Wiley music. <laughs> uh, you so remember when you went on that tangent about how amazing, um, like, there was something about 8-bit games where they had cracked the code, and, you know, all anybody was asking for was an, a, a version of Sonic 4 that was just Sonic 2 with different levels. You know, yeah, all it was anybody was asking for. Oh yeah, that's the thing about some of those uh, some of those franchises like Mega Man. Uh, like Mega Man Two is widely considered to be just like the perfect Mega Man game. It's uh, it's super challenging. It holds up still to be very very challenging. It's a very hard game. Um, it's beautiful. It's well designed, and they made all these different Mega Man games. And eventually, they got into like Mega Man X, and it got more slick. And there was more stuff that you could do. You could slide and jump off walls, and blah 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 blah. And then eventually, a couple of years ago, they made Mega Man Nine and Mega Man Ten, which were done just with the Mega Man Two engine mm-hmm. to look exactly like a game made in like 1992. And uh, they were amazing. They were so fun to play and so much more fun to play. Simple mechanics, just two button mechanics again. There's nothing super complicated about them compared to like Mega Man 2, just all with the same ideas in mind, with a similar soundtrack in mind, with bosses sort of inspired by the other bosses. People wanted the same thing out of Sonic, the Sonic franchise. Sonic 4 was like a, a weird 3D piece of shit, mm-hmm. and all of the 3D Sonics have just lacked the sort of um, layered level and like the speed the the way that it's different from Mario is that like you're you're running and there's a, just a choice of like five Flow. different layers and it's just like remembering where to jump and where to slide and blah 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 and you can every you can play a sa- the same level six seven times and move between all the different pathways and not take the same route twice and the mastery of it is kind of having like a nice flow all the way through the level 
Yeah. No, no, no disruptions. And every single one that they've made since then has been sort of like clunky or just loses that idea of flow and layering. If they just used the Sonic 2 engine and graphics and made a whole new game or Sonic 3, which was like identical, um, people would love it. It would sell like crazy on the mobile store and it would like give Sega a hit again. It's And it's not any more complicated than that. They don't need to make... Like, oh, one thing they did for iOS, they remade Sonic 2, and they put one of the incomplete beta levels in it, mm. and they, they made it accessible through one of the most annoying pitfalls in that game, where there's, like, a level, the Mystic Cave level, where if, like, you are going really fast and you don't pull this lever down, you d- dive into a pit that you can't get out of, and you die every time, and it's, like, the bane of Sonic players' existence. Like, everyone will tell you on that level they die over and over and over at that same point because you never remember it's there. Right. And on the iOS remake, they completed one of the beta levels, and they made it so that when you fall down there, you just keep falling, and you go to a secret level. Nice. And it sold, like, fucking hotcakes because... because <laughs> well, of that one it, joke. It was an addition to the game mm-hmm. that after all those years, after 20-plus years something new about the game and it gave you a hint that the fans were involved in creating it yeah because it was a common complaint about Mm -hmm. that level so they like sort of uh they made like sonic 2 redacted where they just like kind of fixed something and also added a little like nod to long-term players of the game Mm -hmm. and yeah it just goes to show if they just made one that looked and sounded exactly like that there's no way it wouldn't sell (laughs) It would be super, super popular. I read uh, an essay about the creation of Sonic the Hedgehog on Medium, I think. Um, it was, I should send it to you. I think you'd really like it. It was an interesting story because um, Sega was struggling to define themselves against Nintendo. And um, they decided to bring in the former president of Mattel, mm-hmm. who had managed to popularize the Barbie and turn it and turn it from being like kind of a fringe uh, fashion doll to being like a dominant kind of marketing culture icon. Yeah, juggernaut, juggernaut, yeah. right? And so they brought in the Barbie guy, and he started working at Sega, and um, he was uh, hanging out with the developers and stuff. And the idea was like they needed a an answer to Mario. They needed like a, a flagship character to build the new um, corporate culture around. Yeah, and uh the main um president of of sega i forget his name but he drives around in like a a yellow limousine all the way through japan and stuff and it's very gangsterish yakuza-ish and um so he he pulls up his sketches for what he imagines the new mascot's gonna be and one of them is sonic the hedgehog Except at the the time he's called like Needleman or something. Yeah. And he's got fangs, a leather jacket, sunglasses, and he's got he's dating a Caucasian blonde woman with huge breasts. <laughs> oh, and he has an electric guitar. He's an electric guitar. Right? And they're they're unfolding the image in front of the, the Barbie guy and he immediately is like terrified by it. But there's like a subculture in Japan where um, they kind of like that harder edged kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like half the subculture is really into cutesy baby, super cute things, and half the culture is in kind of fifties like greasers, fifties <laughs> greaser rapist monster <laughs> things. So yeah, the Mattel guy uh, immediately feels like it needs to be cuter. They need to to kind of turn it into a Mickey Mouse version. And he redesigns. He makes the eyes real big and the shoes real big and all that. And 
the the president of the company is at first like completely insulted that they've butchered his his dream character. Yeah. But it ends up being a success obviously. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was it's sort of funny like thinking back on that era of gaming and how Sega was really like it was way more competitive between systems. Mm-hmm. Sega was really really determined to prove that it was it had more to offer than Nintendo. It had more to bring to the table to the point where their commercials, if you remember any of the Sega Genesis commercials or Sega CD commercials, Sega, it'll just be like Sega does what Nintendo don't. Yeah. And just be like blast processing, like motherfucking crazy speeds. And they'd have crazy '90s style art direction, like a a, home, a homeless person completely covered in flies and with like gross teeth. And he'd you know open up a trash can and there'd be a Sega Genesis inside, and the, the fucking colored lights fill the alleyway. And yeah, yeah, or just uh, I, th- I remember the one. It was just like a, a kid. It might have been for like Sega CD, which they really pumped up. Like CD was a terrible failure. Every every addition to the Genesis, the 32x like, ate my money. Yeah, so <laughs> the thir- the 32x and the Sega CD um, were like attachments to try and just like prolong the life of the Genesis, and it really, really did. They not did some work. cool things with it though. Like you could play Doom on it, and you could play a Tie Fighter game. Yeah, and the Star Wars and they look good, but it was like they only so many games came out, and they knew that they were developing the Saturn. Right, they were just mm. trying to make people buy additional things for their genesis and like improve the longevity of the console right because they pissed me off though because i kept on they kept on releasing these new devices there'd be three games and then they'd abandon it you're like fuck yeah the same thing happened with virtual boy and stuff like that um but anyways like you you could see that they were just really determined to set themselves apart from nintendo and just like boast about how much better their system was and the advertising back then was just so much more malicious where they would just say the competitor's name Right, like you, you would, you would never think of that in in advertising now. Like they'd never just outright say, like if there was an Xbox commercial, they would never say PlayStation sucks, faggot. Xbox is fucking awesome. <laughs> like they'll never do that. They'll boast. They'll like put cool, edgy, like kind of artsy looking commercials for the system and be really like kind of vague and sort of mystify it. But they'll never just outright be like Sony sucks and PlayStation doesn't run good games. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was a free-for-all where Sega was just like, we do what Nintendo don't. Our system is ah. blast processing. <laughs> blast and like, processing. They went on and on about the blast processing. Which was nothing. Yeah. It just meant An that... extra it, like two two megabytes of RAM. Yeah, and in the, <laughs> in the long run, when you compare the the um the quality of the two systems between Super Nintendo and Sega uh N- Super Nintendo had more colors Super yeah. Nintendo had like a better sound chip um but Sega had its charm Sega had certain things that it could do and only like certain aspects of it were any better than Super Nintendo they both have their memorable games they both have a wealthy library of bullshit Eternal Champions yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man so I did all the fatalities in that game. Yeah. Oh, Altered Beast for Sega was a uh, classic. Rise from your grave. Uh, you know, but for the most part, that era of Welcome gaming. Welcome to your doom. Early, early console gaming, when compared to like early PC gaming, there's a lot of beauty and like really fantastic games happening for PC that were really depthy and narrative and then console gaming was really like just churning it was a whole other world man churning like, out the garbage for I the had, most part um, i had genesis for the longest time and i went to go visit my friend sean in like hamilton east yeah and he had downloaded or not downloaded but he had bought tie fighter for pc yeah 
and that game was so trippy to to compare to what I was flicking around with on my video games. These crappy side scrollers like Castlevania yeah. or whatever. To see like a, a truly thir- uh, the first like three D game where you can like pull back on the joystick and, and you can like, fly the plane. And yeah, the the idea that like. Uh, you're you're joining a squadron that has like Darth Vader in one of the the planes, and you get to go on missions with him and stuff. And yeah. After you succeed at certain missions, the Emperor gives you a medal, and there's like uh, marching ceremonies and stuff. It was all very um, much more visceral and and realistic. Yeah. The PC gaming market, honestly, now even now, like it's faltering. But back then, it was if you were a hardcore gamer, that's what you played like you had console games and they were fun and games like mario and sonic and blah 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 blah. those all stick out in our memories being these really great games but in the long run they're just platformers and rpgs and that's most of those two consoles but mashers streets of rage yeah streets of rage just like side-scrolling beat-em-ups side-scrolling platformers and like tons and tons of rpgs that are bait more or less side-scrolling um and on computer, at that same time, you have, like, some pretty incredible adventure games coming out, point-and-click stuff, you know, like, Lovecraftian adventure games, like Alone in the Dark, where you're just running around, like, shooting horrible creatures in a mansion. It's, like, super polygonal 3D. You can run around and, like, headbutt people and yeah. stuff like that. But it, it's, like, such a different side to gaming from that time. God damn, that reminds me of the internet too. It's it's just like every every um, advance in technology allows more people to join in the conversation and yeah. add more eccentric content to the the pile. Yeah. And it's always the fringe. The fringe is always more interesting than what's going on in the mainstream oh, at yeah. any given era. Yeah, it's amazing. I I really like that independent gaming and like small team gaming can really just pull off those sort of like you can just do hp lovecraft inspired stuff which you know appeals to some but not many there there's like a a weird thing about that kind of cosmic horror writing that lovecraft's about that a lot of people just find to be like too fantasy and like too kind of convoluted he's too wordy and like sort of pretentious for some people i fucking like it a lot and some of the best games i've ever played have been based on his work Someone just made a uh, an independent game called Eldritch, which mm-hmm. is like a it's what's called a rogue type, mm-hmm. and rogue type games are um, you get one chance at it, and it's like kind of an adventure game. You'll find tools, you'll get more life and more mana, but the first time you're killed, all of your progress is gone. You go back to the start, and you just start again. Yeah, there's no way to save. There's no there's no way to like restore your point. You just have one go to try and complete the game, to beat these three worlds, find these three artifacts, and like kind of get out of this library. And uh, they kind of styled it like Minecraft, where it's all randomly generated dungeons, and you can break through some of the walls. And it's it's just like it's just the right amount of scary and like well designed and just like fast, uh, amazing game, and just sort of the kind of one that you just like you play it, and then when you die, you're just like meh, mm. whatever. You walk away from it, you stop caring. Um, and yeah, another one, Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth. That was one of those games that had like an insanity meter. Wow. If you looked at something horrific for too long and you were holding a pistol, you would just put it in your mouth and blow your brains oh, out. Oh, crazy. Yeah, you'd be walking around and something would like kind of come around the corner and you your vision would start to blur and you'd have to look away. And if you didn't look away... Or- even if you're not convinced by the graphics, it's that gamification that makes your heart start to pound and whatever. Yeah, it pulled yeah. it off too where like there's a scene where you wake up in a hotel and the whole town is out to kill you. 
and you're running through and it's so hard. You have to do all these things and like this crazy specific thing and run through doors, close them behind you. And it's a true sense of like fear as you're running because they're always like right behind you smashing through the doors and these like horrible townsfolk. The whole game was like really instilled like more fear than a Resident Evil game ever could or like, you know, it had those like genuine dark moments. Resident Evil 1 was pretty intense. It was intense, but it was never as intense as like your character like just out of nowhere, like in this first person shooter, how often this has happened, like he just puts his gun in his mouth and kills himself because it's too horrific. Trippy. Yeah, you have to sort of deal with that element and you could break your legs and your arms and you'd have to like pat yourself up or like you just drag your leg along mm-hmm. the ground and that would make things more tense because like things are chasing you and you're like just hobbling away no! at this slow speed. No! I don't think we ever talked about uh, True Detective from that Lovecraftian angle. Did you get into it? I watched the first episode and then I just got distracted with other oh, stuff and fuck. never really Okay, it. we got to have a, a True Detective watching party. Jessica's going to BC for a month. So I'm going to have some free fucking time. Um, th- you'll be, you'll love it. It's 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 a totally trippy show. It's it's not what you think it is. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know what to make of it from the first episode. It's very episode. understated. It's very uh surreal and it has it, it's a totally modern interpretation of all that Lovecraft stuff. It's yeah. looking into the 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 abyss of madness and trying to see how that how a, a person can survive that and how it changes their character. That's yeah. what it's about. Oh, I just love it's not that a, aspect. It's not like a Silence of the Lambs type of. Yeah, I didn't really premise. think that about it. You know, I because I'm not really, I'm not really into that kind of stuff um, mm. or any sort of law drama. I have never really been into like CSI or Law and Order or the any artifice stuff like is that. that is that kind of material, but it's not about that. That's that's not the point of the show. Yeah, that stuff's never interested me that much. Cop shows have always just been sort of like I don't really care about like emulating crime. I know what crime's like, and I know like. It's tough out there. Tough, tough to solve a murder. I, I, I get it. I don't need to watch it every week and be stressed out by like, yeah, still trying to catch that fucking serial rapist. Still looking for that Zodiac, eh? Yeah. It, yeah it's a little fucking much for me. Um, it's just a little bit too, um, too removed from real life for me. Like, you'd think for all of the reporting that goes on that there's people being murdered all over the place. But in reality, it's like how many people are actually how many homicides are actually in a city like Toronto and three million three million people? It's Not like maybe I don't a hundred or something. Yeah, I think at the most, I haven't seen any like recent figures on how many homicides in the actual downtown of Toronto. But I would think it can't be that high. Like you never really hear about that many. Like, or even just think about your extended circle. Like it goes yeah. way farther out than six degrees of separation now. Yeah. And, you know, do you know any friends of friends of friends that have been murdered? Like, it's a kind of a rare thing that, that happens in the modern. Yeah, world. not really. It's more mostly car accidents that <laughs> get people. Yeah. But I don't know. The love, the Lovecraftian sort of point of view and, like, all that, like, kind of cosmic horror is way more interesting to me. Like, that real, like, human insanity. And also, that goes back to that whole, like, life is sort of, you're really small. Mm-hmm. You're so small and like sometimes we get a little arrogant and we think that like we're this big but then something comes along some kind of huge horrific creature and kind of like checks us and says the original ah, yeah, Ridley big. Scott Alien had that as a theme and I yeah. think it did it really well like some of the most haunting sequences in that movie are just you know the ship flying through the abyss of space yeah the astronauts coming out of cryosleep or going into cryosleep 
the idea that somebody could be adrift for 50 years like Ripley is at the beginning of Alien 2. Yeah. It's all very Lovecraftian, like that kind of... The idea of being a space traveler, waking up to a horror, just mm-hmm. like a like going out with this like kind of positive intention and waking up to just this complete horror. The there f- are there are insect creatures in the universe that want to lay eggs in your body and use you as a host for their larva. I would really love to do to do like a, a watching of the thing, mm-hmm. like and do, do a like commentary a commentary on it. I'd be down with that. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of one of my favorite movies. There's there's something about that too, where like part of the part of the the movie that i think is kind of understated is that the humans are all really disgusted by the idea that a, that an alien could perfectly imitate them mm-hmm. like the closer it gets to imitating the humans the sort of more pissed off they all get that it's trying to mm-hmm. because they don't like they feel like it's stealing their identity and i think that's sort of like this understated um part of the movie that uh you can kind of hear it in the leads voice as it goes on that he's he's not really afraid he's more just angry and wants to exterminate it he's mad that something's trying to take over like the human form um and there's also this really beautiful uh short story like a fan fiction written from the perspective of the thing that uh if you can find it and out there anyone who's watched the thing and really likes it not the new bullshit remake of the thing that was kind of like just too actiony but john carpenter's the thing there's a short story out there that takes place from the perspective of the thing that adds this whole new layer where it's always just sort of like it doesn't know that uh things on this planet exist separate it's always wow yeah it's always it sees us having sex with one another and multiplying and having new humans like come out of vaginas and stuff well, as being well because it's the own same thing f- it does its own form on its home planet is like all of the all of the material or whatever is all just one big thing that can break off into whatever shape it needs to be to oh, like crazy. solve a problem and that's what it's happening on earth except it's in much slower motion yeah and they're seeing they're seeing different humans and it's like unable to discern between these two humans or the dog, it thinks that the entire planet is alive and is acting in these tools, that it's manifested these tools mm. to interact with the alien and that they're hostile. Yeah. And so the whole time it spends just trying to hide from this planet that it, it thinks is against it. Mm-hmm. And is um, against it. It's trying to exterminate it. Yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. Uh, I thought you were going to go down uh, the path of saying that the thing is also slightly a fanboy. So when he meets uh, characters in the in the ice hut that he thinks are interesting or cool, he wants to bond with them and copy their their traits. Yeah, sort of that kind of plays into it too, where it's also just trying to. I want to be a fat guy. I'll take well, his yeah, body. It's trying to add the uniqueness into its own. It's that Borg mentality from Star mm-hmm. Trek, right? Where you could see Bo- the Borg as being evil, and they're definitely um, presented as the enemies and like the evil, like kind of heartless creatures. But in the long run. Uh, at their core, it's it's really like not a good or a bad thing. Right. They have like a neutral impulse to just add all distinctiveness to their own mm-hmm. and to become the complete amalgamation Assimilate. of all like creative fluctuation in the universe. Like take everything that there is and boil it down into like one Organize it. thing. Yeah, yeah, Organize yeah. it into something that's like all Efficient. the best parts of everything with all the negatives removed. Did they ever do a trippy... Um, 
section in in star trek where you got to see what was going on in the consciousness of the borg yeah actually like could you do they have like lush imaginations and things that are different from their, their well uh, they sort of play around with bodies in next generation they didn't really do much of that because the borg were sort of this like distant threat and like you know they're popping up but they're sort of from far away and then in voyager which is kind of like a lesser series to most people because it's just terrible casting mm. one oh just so terribly cast but the stories are good and sort of the idea is that they get thrown into the delta quadrant where the borg live wow. it's where they're actually set up and so they start finding like billions and billions and billions of them living in these huge colonies mm-hmm. and uh it deals a lot with like the borg queen who there is like kind of a conscious mind at the center and everyone just sort of listens to her. It's like right. the the super colony hive mind where every other part is just an extension of her will through like this technology. And she has sort of a, a will and like an origin, but is also not like unique. Like there's multiple of her and she remakes herself. Um, but they do play into how like the the drones aren't eternally like lost like you can save them like one of the one of the cast members that they bring on in a laser season because they needed to add some tits and ass to the fucking cast seven of nine the fucking cast seven of nine is like a borg drone that they turn into back into a human and she she's sort of like the data character who struggles with her humanity and is like you know trying to come from that like cold analytical logic perspective of just trying to add things to your perfection to trying to be more yeah trying to be more human Mm -hmm. um so i don't know it's it's an interesting series if you can get past the bad acting and the bad cast yeah um which i sort of can because i love next generation enough that any addition to that sort of like era of star trek is fine by me i think i don't think i would bother watching the episodes but if there's a wiki of it (laughs) I've been really enjoying going through... I'd watch the episodes. Like, you know, I, I, I do the wiki thing, too. That's how I learned everything about Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I didn't read any of the books. I just read every wiki article and all, like, and the lineages. And it becomes a thing in itself, right? It's kind of entertaining to, to read through stories and that yeah, kind I think, of binaural, I think we talked way. about that before, how, like, I see the kind of Game of Thrones mythos in a far more, like, almost historical perspective because I haven't read any of the narrative point of view stuff from the books. I've only read like a bunch of lineage backstory plot summaries and all of these things that are very like thorough and analytical and yeah. give me a very like whole picture all at once. Yeah. I look at it more like I learned it in school and like kind of memorized all of these facts and places Rather than actually getting this, it's so weird... funny to go on the wiki, uh, the uh, Game of Thrones wiki, and follow through a character, and they'll yeah. mention key events that affect the world of East Westeros, right? Yeah, and it'll say like this was all due to fallout from the Red Wedding or whatever it is, blank. And you'll go like, oh fuck, what was that? And you you click on the link and you dynamically go to that part of the story and you read yeah. up on it and you go like, who's this character? And you click that and you go. It's, it's the beauty of the wiki, right? Because like the, for people like us who probably have like whatever the uh, attention deficit disorder thing really is, <laughs> where our minds are just like kind of prone to like lots and lots of different threads all at once, or just like lining up all this information on impulse. The wiki's perfect, where you're just constantly looking at it and being like, it's oh. It's a different experience, though, like, because I find you, when you read through the story at a surface level like that, you have a holistic understanding of where the arc of the characters are headed that yeah. you can miss if you're following it 
in a book or on a television show. Yeah. You kind of miss the broader arcs that are happening in the show. And there's sort of this thing going on with me and Game of Thrones with the uh with the show and knowing all this stuff, kind of being like up caught up to date with the books but have like a really whole understanding that adds a layer to the show where like I don't care that things have been spoiled for me because like with the show, the nuances in the execution and like they're not doing it exactly by the books, which is like, you know, smart of them to like sort of condense stories down. Um, But I have like sort of like a nice backstory to all these characters and have like a sort of like understanding of how the world works. Yeah. So when things are being thrown at me in the show, I'm not really having to think too hard about like what they're talking about. Like I recognize names and principles and like mm-hmm. religions and stuff like that. And they, that sort of um, internet sort of tie-in for me first happened in that movie Cloverfield. Do you right. remember when Cloverfield came out? Um, that movie from its like actual plot, if you just watch it, is just these people are at a party and the crazy monster attacks New York and they try and get out and all of them die. And it like that whole movie basically doesn't have any sort of really driven plot other than there's like, you know, minor character interaction. You'd get to feel a little bit waiting to see the monster, waiting to see the monster. Finally. However, before that movie came out, when they were hyping it up, they did this whole alternate reality marketing thing with the internet with all these different, like, dummy websites and, like, you know, weird cryptic things that described, like, these big corporations and, like, drilling in the sea and actually described some of these characters and showed minor characters sort of before the movie and set some of these, like, dramas up. Uh, and then they put lots and lots of nods to that in the actual movie mm. so that when you're watching, you see, like, the symbol for one company or, like, you see a character that... Uh, in like one of the video blogs is getting like super drunk and like taking drugs is like passed out on a couch at the party and that sort of like extra tie-in when I went and saw the movie I knew in like Brantford there must not have been many people around me that had participated or like done the kind of research into that weird internet tie-in so I was watching a movie and getting a way different experience like a, a whole other layer to the movie where everyone was just seeing this like big monster movie where like New York gets destroyed again. Yeah. Um, I think there's such crazy potential in that in tying in the way people like research stuff on the internet and like how wikis are set up and the way alternate reality marketing can be really, really effective. They did the same thing for Halo, Mm -hmm. like Halo two or three. They had a big, like I love bees website tie-in that was all scary and cryptic and you can call a phone number and like get emails and like people were trying to crack the code and looking in the source code it became this big puzzle that everyone had to figure out and then when people figured out it was halo 2 right like mm. the the kind of answer to the problem was oh halo 2 is coming out soon <laughs> but like that the, that scene in the christmas story where the kid deciphers the the, the secret message and it's i love ovaltine yeah. Ovaltine. <laughs> Ovaltine. A fucking commercial? Yeah. A crummy commercial? Son of a bitch. It, it captivated so many people's minds of like, oh, this mysterious website with like weird clues and like puzzles hidden in the source code. Obviously, a lot of thought and intent had been put into it, and it got a lot of people like wanting to participate. So then in the long run, when like Halo 2 came out and it had nods to that alternate reality gaming thing and it, people fucking loved it. And they were just like raving about how like cool that part of the game was and how it's like the best advertising campaign for a game ever. 
I think that should be like implicated more often, especially with like tablets and smartphones. Like there should be way more of a tie-in. Um, like use this sort of alternate reality thing that's going on with Google Glass and with your smartphones. And yeah, all my this friend sh- Supinder was in a CBC show called like Guidestones or something, and they did all sorts of augmented reality stuff where they would hide clues and things for the next episode around the city. And I think they won some awards for relating with that kind of stuff just using real space because people like can interact with it and it like encourages people to go like experience their own environment like the band ps i love you has just been doing things where they uh they put one of their tapes or records in like a weird secret spot in the city and they take a close-up picture of that spot and and post the city that it's in and be like Uh oh anyone who can find this ps i love you tape will get it and they're just doing it in every city as they're on tour, like leaving their stuff around. And it gets people excited because then they go, I know where that is. And they uh, run out and they try and like race down to get that free PS I Love You tape. And you know what? On the one hand, you could look at it as just a marketing kind of thing. But on the other hand, as like an artist, that's such a fun thing to do. You oh, know? yeah. Playing- It'd be so cool to like lay presents or whatever around each subway station and go, you know, adults- at St. George. Go get it, guys. Adults are just big <laughs> kids. And they want to participate in stuff like Easter egg hunts. They just need it to be fashioned in a way that appeals to an adult so they don't look ridiculous for doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's any adult's hang-up for participating in, like, childlike behavior. Like, you can get a bunch of people together to play tag. if you chicken f- dance. If, if, no, if you, uh, if you formulate it as, like, a, uh, like a hide-and-seek, like, city, like, urban thing. Like, oh, let's utilize our urban space and play, like, a big game of uh, hide-and-seek. Night hide-and-seek. They, they used to do that in Toronto. What was, like, what was that called? Was it just hide-and-seek? Uh, I forget the cool name for it. Yeah, but yeah. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was just, like, it was, like, flag tag where you, like, had to pull the bandana and, like, you couldn't go indoors. They came and did it in Brantford a few times. You know, I think it got shut down. I think it became popular for about two weeks in Toronto, and then... The cops started complaining. Getting wise to it. You can't be hiding behind cars on streets and stuff. And I don't know. It's something about it. It makes their sour. job too messy because then they're seeing all these suspicious looking people with bandanas hiding behind well, cars. Well, I know when I played it, what was crazy is that... Manhunt. You, manhunt. manhunt. That's what you it get, was called. You get uh, encouraged or tempted into doing things like sneaking into people's backyards and stuff. Yeah. Where you're climbing over fences and you're like, oh my God, I'm hiding in some random person's tool shed. You know, I hope I don't get shot. I hope there's no dog. That's that's kind of the fun of it, right? Like that was especially in a place like Brantford. Um, one thing I wish we could have done is had a game of manhunt when uh, there's a big street in Brantford, Colburn Street. This is a, this is something that really like kind of boils my blood, but it was the longest stretch of uh, pre-Confederate buildings left in Ontario. Mm. It was like fifty or sixty buildings all in a row, and they were like pretty dilapidated. Um, as a as a bit of a backstory, Brantford, Ontario was like kind of an industrial town in the 80s there was uh late 80s and early 90s there was a big downfall in in the downtown and related to this big eaton's complex that had been built a really expensive one drove all the business out and then all at once this millionaire bought up all the buildings all these like pre-confederate buildings for really cheap because he expected the the economy to bounce back and then he'd be able to turn all these buildings over to flip it all the to new businesses and just walk away with money that never happened and he sat on the buildings for like 20 years 
and let them just get run down and become slums and become like squats. The roofs start to leak, then everything rots. Then and they, they were really down. they were really beautifully built and like amazing buildings if someone had just had the chance to restore them. And so one thing we did was uh, my friend wanted to film a documentary about it, so we broke into all these buildings. It was pretty easy. There was only one security guard on site, and he was fucking Inspector Gadget, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just running go, aw- go gadget, running Flash away from light. this big fat idiot uh, in a yellow coat, and getting into all these buildings. We got into quite a few of them, and the only thing I could think was, man, if you just got like a bunch of like kind of careful adults together uh, on a night with like flashlights and just had a game of manhunt, like hide and seek in these sixty buildings. Because a lot of them, real con- danger. A lot of them connected through the basements. Holy shit, that'd be scary. Or and through like the upstairs, so you could get through. You could weave your way through all these buildings, and there's old abandoned barber shops and like old restaurants with like torn out floors and huge what? high ceilings. Yeah, it was just building after building of all these like dilapidated, silent hill looking, rundown buildings. Some and hilariously enough. Silent Hill filmed in Brantford wow. and they barely ha- they filmed it there before the buildings barely were torn had to down. Build any sets. They didn't have to. They just like dressed up some of the buildings to look a bit more creepy and put a bunch of like white ash on the ground and it became Silent Hill. Nice. Yeah, and so if you watch that first Silent Hill movie, a lot of those like town shots are done whenever you see sort of like a kind of like early Canada looking downtown with all these like big tall sort of that's what buildings. I'm gonna think of whenever I, when you ever you mention your childhood, I'm like Brendan's from Silent Hill. From fucking Silent Hill. <laughs> I and I wanted to have a big game of hide and seek or just like a, like one of those sort of like, haunted tours. Like let's go through fucking Brantford's dilapidated history before it gets torn down forever. Brad. In the sake of development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, we got some pretty good footage from the inside of those buildings and stole some pretty cool stuff, especially from the old barber shop. There's all these like pictures of all the hairstyles from the, the early '90s, <laughs> and they were all on the same Asian man and Asian woman, <laughs> just like hundreds of hairstyles over these few posters. It was fucking amazing. Was that is that ever? Did the did the barber shops just have a generic styling decoration kit that they can download or buy from a store, and then they put it up on the wall, or do you have to earn your haircuts? Like, do you get? Do you get an official haircut photo after you've graduated from barber college and you've mastered the bouffant or the, I, I've always, the coif? I've always wondered that because you always go into like all those like kind of hair salons, especially not so much now, but before and like old school hair salons, you still see it now where they have examples of stuff on the wall. And you wonder is like, are those the things you've practiced most? Do you just like really want to do those haircuts? Have you chosen those strategically or is that just like wallfare? Exactly. It's just art. That you're just kind of Is putting it just up. what comes in the default uh, interior design of barbership co- barbershop uh, package. Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> and I kind of don't care. Jerry curl, please. <laughs> Number five. Oh, I haven't been to see a barber in a really long time. I trust my friends so much more. There are people who have They're like more hair, hair cutting ability, and just like they are, as friends, they also. Um, have at least like a vested interest in how you look like they're not they don't want to turn you into like a really shitty looking person so they're gonna do their best to not fuck up your hair every single person that i've met has a horror story from first first choice haircut i was just about to say that sit down in the barber chair and you're really excited about a date you got that weekend and you're trying to explain what haircut you want and the dropout high school chick with the, the fucking buzzer puts a number two buzzer on your head and shaves like right down the center a stripe and then proceeds to shave the rest of your head 
like yeah. as if you're like entering the Marines or something. That happened to me in uh, in grade ten. My first day, my first day of high school, when I started high school, a few days before I went and got for sure Sarah and she fucked up the bangs so much that I had like <laughs> I had like Frankenstein bangs. <laughs> so like the hairline just went like over my temples and then straight up and just square framed my forehead. And I remember looking uh, in the mirror and just don't being like, for old bed. Uh, yeah, I, I just remember looking in the mirror and being like, oh man, I look so fucking dumb. Like. My first, I, I don't know anybody at this new high school because I went to a Catholic elementary school and then switched to the public high school system. I don't know anybody and I'm going to go and this is how, this is my first impression. Everyone's going to have like Frankenstein haircut in their head. Ugh, it was fucking terrifying. First choice, definitely not your second choice <laughs> after, after you see what we're going to do to you. What, how did how does it even ha- survive as a brand like for more than a couple of weeks? I if, think it's I think it's cheap parents, parents that are just like I want to hire anybody. That did they even train anyone to cut hair? Because everyone has a horror story. I feel like I feel like their policy is to hire people who are currently in beauty school. Mm. So it's like the it's like a training ground for all these like kind you get of paid. You get paid and you get to practice and like because the haircuts are cheap enough, people can't really complain that much. If you're only paying fifteen bucks for a haircut, you get what you pay for. Oh, I think it was ten. And I think it was it was made boldly clear by the attitude the casual attitude of everybody working at that barbership that they did not give a fuck about your hair and you yeah. get what you deserve. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna punish you. That's why you gotta get like your girlfriend or your friends to cut your hair. My because... dad cut my hair for years and years, up until I was a teenager. My yeah. He did a good do a good job. Yeah, he was okay. Yeah. I mean, I could have got better haircuts if I went somewhere professional, I think, but it was free. Yeah. And uh, like you say, they they seem to care. They try to... Whenever my mom would cut my hair, she'd give me fucking like mushroom cuts. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I hated it, but I had no choice because like that was what I was getting. That was what she was doing. She was terrible at cutting hair. <laughs> I think that what made me saddest was that my dad used to work a lot. He was always away from the house for whatever reason you'd come home at like 12 30 at night sometimes yeah. and i remember it always being kind of a hassle to convince him to like cut my hair like he'd always act like it was such a pain in the ass yeah and that made me feel kind of sad that like he wouldn't <laughs> care enough to like want to cut my hair it was only like once every two months or whatever it yeah. should have been like a bonding time this is yeah. the only like real physical contact i had with him too right like yeah, it's weird how that kind of stuff uh, shakes you when you're with a you. kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about my one of my earliest memories. Like I just celebrated my birthday. I was thinking like one of my one of my earliest memories is uh is like just I don't even remember what birthday it was. It must have been pretty young, five or six or something like that. And uh, I remember like we had like a pioneer sports world yeah. outside of Brantford with like batting cages and go karts and stuff like that. And I'd never been to anything like that. My dad built it up. For weeks and weeks and weeks, <laughs> and then uh, he he had he had kind of forgotten that he had like entered like a golf tournament oh. for that day, and so I woke up that day and uh, he was gone, and my mom was just like, "He's at a golf tournament," and I just remembered like the absolute like a disappointment, like, just disappointment. I didn't even cry. Mm. I just like kind of went oh, and like just oh, he went to a golf tournament. And, but he just like he he told me we were gonna yeah. go to Sports World, and that moment, how much of it like, I even it, like in retrospect, that's not that important. Mm-hmm. Like it's just something like as a kid, it's like yeah, that's sort of shitty to do to me. But in the long run, it, that could have been like a lot worse. Like yeah, 
um but just how much like that like kind of hurts in the yeah. for like for that age and anything like that you sort of miss out on with your parents like really like you just hold on to those memories more than you do the memories that are sort of more joyous at least i do maybe i'm fucked no, up no 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 you're totally right because uh i had a similar scenario where my parents like we were a welfare family in the early 90s and stuff like that so yeah. they were always struggling when i when i was growing up and there'd be very uh, real evidence of that in our child lives in that there'd be practical things like sometimes they wouldn't pick us up after school for like hours yeah and i understand why that happened now but as a kid that's fucking it was so crushing and yeah sad like you'd see all of your friends like getting picked up by their parents you'd see your teachers start to go home and unlock their cars and they're asking they're one they're worried about you they're like are you guys okay yeah where you- your parents are just like yeah no they're coming and it's like 6.30 rolls around and you've been out there for like three hours. And some day, there was days where it was so cold, Brennan, yeah. that me and Jordan and Jillian had our knees tucked up in our jackets and we were hiding on the playground against the wind. Just and waiting. then we would see that rusted K car like drive up and we'd get in the back and it would just be like, you know, what do you even say, right? Like you're glad that they picked you up. Um, you want to complain and stuff, but you don't know the circumstances that led them to be late and stuff. Yeah, and as a kid, it's really hard to understand. I feel like a lot of who I am and sort of like the independent nature of, you know, the way I live now has to do with the fact that, like, when I was eight years old, eight, when I was eight was probably the first time I got left alone for, like, 48 hours. Mm. Like, just two consecutive days where my dad would, like, took off to a golf tournament somewhere in a different wow. city and sort of was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be yourself. gone. And I remember, you can use the bathroom. <laughs> I rem- well, I, it was just sort of like in a way, I don't know whether or not it was like a respect for how much I'd sort of learned by that point in my life through like having my older brothers who were like way older than me. Mm-hmm. And like this divorce that happened, you know, I'd sort of learned to fend for myself pretty early. Right. And felt and kids are capable. They're more capable than the modern people are very them, patronizing. Yeah, like yeah. They assume that a kid is, is retarded. Like they're not going to be able to get milk out of the fridge and pour themselves cereal. And yeah. Stuff. So he, he left me and it was sort of like, I remember that weekend, like really vividly of just like, you know, I played a lot of counter strike on PC and like, I watched a lot of TV and stayed up late. Like the kind of things that you do when you had carte blanche as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't get into trouble and I didn't break anything. And I fed myself to a, like a degree that was acceptable. And he came back home was, alone. Yeah, and after that, that set the president where, like, once he knew that, like, two days was okay with me, <laughs> there's there no, there no such thing as a babysitter anymore, right? It's just, like, keep the doors locked. Don't answer the door for anybody. If anyone comes to the door, don't answer it. That's it. Just, like, stay in the house and do what, do what you want to do. So I fucking just play with Lego and play yeah. computer games. And- like, that memory kind of has a positive spin, eh? Like, it was well, kind of cool that you were independent enough to be... It's definitely... I have a, I have a, a, a certain emotional disconnect with my parents. Mm. Where, like, I just don't feel the same way that other kids... Like, the, the kind of constant attention and sort mm-hmm. of um, interaction with their parents that they had. I'm more of the... You know, I, I sort of was able to do what I wanted to do. And by the time I was a teenager... I could go to shows and I could go out and do a bunch of drugs and uh, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't sound like the greatest thing, but had a lot of fun as a teenager and I wasn't checked very often on it. And it would sort of just be like, you know, I'd see my dad and he'd be like, oh, you're okay. You probably had, looked like you had a rough weekend. And I'd just <laughs> fucking go to bed and that would be it. Yeah. 
and yeah, so I've just, I've felt really comfortable being apart from my parents right. f- from a, a, from a long time I ago. Have the, I have the, the same kind of relationship in that, like we were kind of free range children. Yeah. We raised ourselves. And the thing that it, it brought out in me, I think is I think when you're raised that way, you have a completely different understanding of what the relationship between like your genetics and your personality really is. Yeah. Like there's a warped um, fantasy that people have that just because like somebody's your brother or they're your parents that you have this really deep connection in your souls. Like we're, because someone is genetically similar to you, they've got to have stuff in common with you or they've got to have um, a deep kind of like personal rapport. Right. And that can be true and to an so, extent. But what I would argue is that like the reason that why, why people find family reunions awkward and why um, it's forced sometimes and why there's people in your family, your cousins, your brothers and sisters that you just have absolutely no use for sometimes. Yeah. It's that it's random. You have stuff in common with your siblings and with your parents. You also have stuff in common with random people off the sidewalk, people you'll meet at your office, people you'll meet at your school. Yeah. There's just overlap in humans. Like, yeah. it's it's trippy to see that, oh, we got the same nose or we have the same uh, hands or whatever. You're like, how's that? Um, how those how those blue eyes treating you? I like mine. Yada, yada, yada. You could talk on that level. And yeah. I, I suppose you were raised in the same house, so there's overlap there, but... And it, it that depends on, like, sort of interaction with the parents, right? Because you and I, like, admittedly had, like, less interaction and, like, less strict households where mm-hmm. the they weren't kind of setting super strict parental boundaries, not doing things sort of the conventional way, more of, like, a freewheeling, like, you know, less involved version of parenting. And it's just, you know, definitely influenced us. And so, but that in the long run means that, like, do we have a lot in common with them? Do our interests overlap? Like, we were involved in what they were doing in their life. Mm-hmm. Like, how often did I really get taken to the golf course? How often did I get taken he to the... He smuggled you in his golf bag. You could have well, been his caddy. No, that and that did happen every once in a while. Hours. Like, it, it would be sort of like a rare treat where I'd be asked, like, I'd get paid, like, 30 bucks, and all I'd have to do is, like, drive the golf cart while they all got, like, super drunk and stoned and played, like, a round of golf. And then at the end of the night, they'd they'd get real drunk in the clubhouse and fuck around and play darts and be real loud. And I would sit there and eat baskets of fries by myself and just sort of make my own fun on the golf course, go outside and putt putt on the putting range and just do it myself and just like completely unsupervised. My dad's drunk. There's no like no boundaries being set for me. It's sort of just like, hey, there's a big dark golf course out there. Here's some balls and a club. Go fucking nuts. Dad, there's a puma outside. But that that didn't happen all the time, and not enough to where, like, I got into golf the same way he likes it. And, like, you know, every once in a while, he'd take me to the lodge. Like, he was part of a... He was legit part of the royal order of the moose. Oh, where, I thought you were going to say he was a mason. I'm like, Brendan, you could be a mason. <laughs> no, like, uh, like, the royal order of the moose, which is basically one of these clubs where, like, it's like a... Uh, a drinking and smoking club where they could still smoke inside after the bands were put on and they had lots of dart boards and shuffle boards and like pool tables and a bar and all the drinks were really cheap and I would like every once in a while get brought there it was around the corner from our house so we'd walk home and like just watch my old man and his friends get wasted and argue and smoke joints and fucking play pool Rad. and that was like a, a lot of what I knew about my dad at that point like I knew he worked in a factory and it was really hard work and he worked a lot and came home. It was like really like 
agitated, but also they're like, you know, he had a lot of real good buds and just wanted to party. Mm-hmm. Like he was just sort of like as a as a dad, he was way more interested in like not wasting any years on on mm-hmm. having to be this parental role where he's like, "No, I'm going to hang out with my friends and play golf and whatever. It is what it is." I oh, don't but and dude, what what's so strange is you if you have any friends that are from the other side of the fence, the grass is always greener, right? Like I've got friends that were brought up with a very um, affluent and structured upbringing where, you know, all of the classic things where they were encouraged to explore their interests and they were enrolled in karate classes and brought to Disney World every couple of years, everything you can imagine for a, for a um, perfect childhood. Yeah. But it ends up giving you issues as well, right? Like one thing that's liberating about having um, being uh, brought up the way we were is that there's no expectations on you, right? Like yeah. When you're brought up with a very privileged um, household, there's a lot of pressure on you to succeed. Yeah, a lot to, of weight to on your become shoulders. like more successful than your parents, um, to not fail at anything, to um, to be an overachiever, more overachiever, or less, yeah. like, or to deliver on the the investments that they made in you. Yeah, right. And I think no, that, you're gonna learn how to play violin, and you're gonna get fucking good at it. Right. You know, it's that whole, like, Michael Jackson, like, sing, motherfucker, dance, motherfucker, like, mm-hmm. you're gonna make me money, and, like, putting all Cut that... Cut me a switch. You ever <laughs> see that biopic for of the Jacksons? No. He's always having to cut his own switch, his own his own limb off of a willow tree so that his dad could beat him with it. That was part of the humiliation ritual. Yeah, you where you cut you, your you own pick, torture weapon. Pick your own fucking pain. <laughs> oh, that's fucked up. I think, and, you know, I like, I wonder, like, yeah, there's definitely, like, issues I have as a result of, like, the style of parenting that I had and sort of, like, the, you know, they divorced when I was pretty young and, and like, then de- never talked to each other ever again. That's weird. Like, ne- they never did anything together. They never came to, like, my graduation <laughs> together. It was always one or the other. I was with one or the other, and it was, like, mostly my dad. And, like, my mom was sort of out of the picture for a while. And, yeah, I probably have, like, some fucked up things as a result of that but i also really like the sense of independence that i have from any sort of like i'm just on my own and i feel very comfortable about that that yeah you know some people out there i know are pretty immature and like could go and live with their parents at any time right their parents would welcome them home i don't have that luxury i have to fucking do what i have to do to live and i've never felt like i could just go back Mm -hmm. and live with them they like they don't want me there and it would just be a huge hassle for both like both yeah. parties so like you take the good with the bad and you try not to be bitter about like people's choices you just, p- parents are just people they're just people you and have they that did the best they could in most cases yeah you yeah. have that beautiful realization where your dad's just like a fucking guy with problems and with issues and like who's made good and bad choices and you can you can hate them all you want, but that's not going to do you any good. Like and if you just sit around and it be becomes bitter, a poison after a while, right? Like the uh, you be- you get that that um, victim syndrome where something that happened to you when you're eight years old is still holding you back. Yeah, like that it doesn't matter. Needs like, to be exercised. Every every moment past is just like it's it's gone. Like you, you can dwell on it as much as you want, but it's better to just learn from it and move on. And like all these people who just spend their entire lives, like mourning over their relationship with their parents, 
some of them just need to realize that, hey, you and your parents were not meant to, like, be friends in this case. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just don't see eye to eye. And, like, all the people, like, you know, people who who spent their childhood in the closet. And you always knew that they were gay but could never tell their parents. And just are so torn up by how Mm -hmm. their parents treat them. Let it go. Your parents and you don't see eye to eye, and you don't have to. There's nothing... And the kind of liberating thing that happens where you recognize that we've all become different people. Your parents are different people than they were when they raised you. Yeah. And sometimes you can have a lot better relationship if you just let go, and you say, like, you know what? Past is the past. Let's have a good Christmas. Yeah. You know, let's just relax and talk about... That's what I do Mulan. now, where I had, I had, like, you know, a period in my teen years where i was really bent out of shape about the the my relationship with my parents and then in recent years i've had that revelation of like they're just people being mad at them doesn't solve anything they're never going to see things the way that i see it like i'm never going to be able to really convey how i feel about my childhood in a way that that's going to resonate with them in a really deep way and so i don't need to i've realized that and it's just like okay when i go home at christmas hang out with my dad we smoke a joint we play some golf on PS3. We talk a little bit about what's going on in our lives, and we reminisce about the past a little bit, and then we go our separate ways, and it's not like a big deal. And like when, that's just sort of the like a comfortable comfortable thing for me, and I feel like I got it really early in life. Yeah, like I have this sort of like grasp on my relationship with my parents, where like it just doesn't hold me back or like bother me at all. They say that there's a common um, trope in like the classic hero arc where the the hero almost always loses their parental figures early on. And yeah. that's what leads to the heroic journey. My parents, my parents were killed by the shogun. <laughs> I must I must avenge my parents. Or it's Luke like, Skywalker's aunt and uncle burning. Yeah, and it's like, you know what? You don't need to avenge them. Did you even really like them that much? Fucking uh, Luke's aunt and uncle were good to him and stuff like that, but they kept him on a boring farm and never told him anything about his dad. For real. It's like, yeah, you know what, dude? Did you really care about them that much? Fuck. Don't mourn too hard over that. I I think at its core, it just sets up, it sets the stage for the heroic leap. Because once you don't have any obligations, you can start to get really interesting. You're like, maybe I'll go to Japan. I've got nothing left. Nothing left but vengeance. Because, like, I think that uh, this is another kind of sad idea. But like, most of the most of the emotion that I had when I was growing up was that family was about obligation. It was about obligation more than like love. Yeah. It was about how parents were obligated to work at jobs that they didn't like, so that they could keep food on the table, and kids were obligated to go to school. And hang out with like bullies and things that they hated, and dress in clothes that they didn't like because they couldn't afford anything else. Yeah, and living in a country that's fucking cold six months of the year, and um, weird things like having to move all the time when I was a kid because we'd get like evicted from our houses and stuff. Yeah, there was and like awkward family gatherings where like your family is the the black sheep's, and you know you have more wealthy cousins that are giving you presents and stuff but you don't have anything to give them i had that same experience where we our family was definitely the like oh are you guys doing okay case right at every family gathering where it's like oh you got like and yeah we had like richer relatives that sort of unconsciously lorded how much better their lives were in relationships with their kids and and stuff like that sometimes not even like i think back to those memories now from my cousins and stuff point of view 
and like they were just trying to be nice they're yeah. trying to like give us a good christmas oh absolutely but we couldn't help but like have that guilt inside us where we were proud like and we yeah. didn't want like charity or anything like that I, yeah i know exactly where you're coming from mm. i felt that a lot as a kid where it's just like i'd get a really nice gift and it like i for me something that's always been a been a big thing for me is i've always felt really like thankful for like any gift i've always felt very like i don't understand gifting in a way that that really resonates with me mm-hmm. uh, like in my morality and like i've never felt like i like i i deserve a gift right yeah. like when i when i get something for my birthday or for christmas i'm always really like surprised and thankful like and immediately just like i'm r- like you really di- didn't have to do this for me mm-hmm. when someone gives me a gift i always feel that immediate like you, you really don't have to do this um yeah i don't know it's just been like that my whole life and uh so i've always i don't know yeah yeah it's, it's just it's really weird and when you get a when you get a really nice gift from like your your better off uncle and it kind of almost trumps the gifts that your parents give you is sort of what i was getting at and you're just looking at it being like oh, i feel bad because how must my parents feel mm-hmm. like they put money that they kind of don't have into getting me something that they thought i'd really like and then my uncle goes and kind of like outspends them, not out of like any sort of malice, but out of just like a genuine like want to get me a good gift. And I have to act appropriately like thankful, but I also don't want to, my parents to feel like I'm like more appreciative of that gift. Yeah. That raised a lot of like moral concern with me as a kid where I was like, I just felt bad. Right. I like I wanted to treat every gift. It was just like I don't deserve any of these and I'm really thankful that they're all like mm-hmm. a part of this celebration. It's just like it's you know I don't know, I, I I remember the first time I got my PlayStation. Like I got I got this like amazing PlayStation. It was like definitely the most expensive and best gift I got for that Christmas. The gaming consoles were always the best Christmas presents. Yeah, and I remember like it was sort of my my mom and dad who had gotten it for me, but I made it a point even at that age to hug everybody in the room and thank them for it. Yeah. Like really subconsciously, like I just wanted to thank everyone sort of for the opportunity to have it. I don't yeah. know if that's like yeah, that's weird, but that's something I've always felt and like has really Yeah, you felt blessed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't know, gift giving it's strange to me, but it's also like I do appreciate the like the joy in it when you give someone a gift that is like really like makes them happy. It's like a mm-hmm. it's a great feeling. Something that I think a lot of people don't appreciate these days. I don't it's it was a weird thing for me because uh you know, I feel like I was a bit of a non materialist even when I was a kid. Like where the thing that I valued most was um, focused attention. I really appreciated it f- from like adult figures and from my brothers and sisters when I could just have a really focused conversation with somebody. Yeah, I remember like craving that so much and like being really excited about spending time with my grandparents because they were alert. You yeah. know what I mean? Like where they would ask you a question and you could tell that they were listening to you when yeah. you answered them. And they were, they wanted to know things about you and your life and how you thought and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's what I craved the most. Like, I, I felt like sometimes what was the most awkward about having cousins and things visit is they would do all of the symbolic things, like give you presents and stuff, but they do it in like a, as if it's a, just a, a customary kind of thing. It's just right. a ritual. Right. 
And all I wanted was like, you know, your cousins to tell you, you know, your aunt tells you that she loves you and stuff and she wants to catch up with you and, and all of that kind of emotional things is, is what I wanted. And I, I guess that's what made me interpret the gifts as being shallow is that you kind of go like, oh, it's a, you guys have only seen me like once this year it's and you're bringing a, presents and things like that. You don't even have a relationship. Yeah, with it's, it's like, a replacement of that actual relationship. Yeah. And I actually, it's funny, I had... For a long time, you know, my brothers were where I got a lot of that, that like real conversation. Like my brother Cam, um, you know, was one of my biggest influences growing up. You know, he was a drummer, first inspired me to like listen to different music and like Mm. made sure that I had access to stuff that wasn't just like radio trash. And, uh, and I hadn't really had like when I was first like starting writing music and kind of putting it out when I moved to Toronto. For a long time, my mom sort of looked at it as just being this, like, whatever deal, like like a fantasy or something like that. And not that I think, like, I've done anything, like, significant with my music, but it feels very real to me. And, like, it's very important to me. And it was just, like, one of these past Christmases where my stepdad got a guitar and it, at some point during, like, the Christmas sort of sit around, get drunk Christmas time mm. with everybody in the room for, like, the one time a year it's going to happen... Um, the guitar was getting passed around and it got passed to me and I played a few songs. And it was the first time where like my mom cried. Aww. I haven't seen my mom cry like that in a while. And she really was just like, I get that you're like really passionate about this now. And it was the first time that I felt sort of like that appreciation of a parent where like I wasn't trying to impress her and I didn't really care what she thought, but it was really nice to know that she like got it at yeah, that yeah, point yeah. where she was like, Oh, like he really loves this. Like he loves doing this. And like, you know, he's put a lot of time and effort into tr- like making this into a part of his life. And that was like, a, I understand the sort of like gratification of having that good relationship with your parents where like, they're actually like proud of you on a really genuine level. And it's obvious. Yeah. Like it's not putting it on. It's like, Oh yeah, they really like are like, surprised by how good i like i was able to accomplish you know how much good i was able to do Mm -hmm. i don't know that was interesting yeah 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 well i think that that's probably what three hours or something (laughs) it's a lot we might have to put this out in two parts the double break oh no it's only 236 so that's regular it's a regular episode yep well ding dang diggly do well thanks for surviving your uh your your long day of moving and you're, I don't know, having the energy left in the tank to uh, hit another episode oh, out yeah. of the park, the great Brennan Black. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we were sponsored Dynamo. today by various delicious foods, chicken pot pie, some kind of weird salty turtle, some strawberries, some weed, some wine. Various Jessica friends that were here briefly before we scuttled off into the podcast office and if you would like to hear us have an episode in which me and jesse just play a game of clue and talk through it please please let us know because i think that's a really great idea and uh, i don't think he's so convinced the kibosh was put on it at the very beginning we really need to do that clue episode jesse (laughs) and And the thing commentary does anyone want to uh anyone want to come play clue with us if you want to participate in a live game and solve just come solve a mystery (laughs) <laughs> like, come solve a mystery with us. That could be pretty fun. There and, might uh, be... Uh, you know what made me think of you is uh, there's this new board game called, like... I think it's Temple something. Uh, Mark from Boy Boy was talking about it. Yeah. It's very similar in dynamic to Catan in that it's semi-cooperative. Yeah. And the idea is that you're on a desert island that's slowly sinking, 
and you need to do um, a number of like collaborative tasks in order to survive long enough oh. to get a score. So there's no winner of the game. The winner of the game is like how collaborative you were and how much points so you can build. Every, everybody either wins or loses. Yeah, you either all die or you See, all win. I'm seeing I'm seeing the potential to just start another podcast. The leave idea grave to be nice and pure and then just like as often as we can get a board game podcast going. Do you like uh, Will Wheaton's thing? Have you seen that? Yeah, that's that's good, but I think it would be like, you know, so, sometimes it's his seems a little bit like put on. Mm-hmm. It seems like a little bit like they're they're acting when they're playing the game. I'd much rather have a situation in which like you, me, maybe one or two other people get like real drunk and try and like get through a game of Clue uh, or just have some kind of tournament. And you know what? Like if, if we stick to it, we could like we have two or three really good uh, board game cafes in Toronto. There's Snakes and Lattes. Oh, do it live from Snakes and Lattes. Snakes and Loggers, which is the beer version that's in the place where Kurova Milk Bar used to be. <laughs> and they've got that Castles place on Spadina now, too. We could do a roaming board game podcast and, uh, you know, maybe add some psychedelics into the mix. The only other thing that reminds me of is uh, Ilya sent me a link to the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Oh, Nerd Poker? And holy fuck, is that the geekiest thing yeah. in the world? They had um, a special episode where they had uh, someone from the development team for the new version of Dungeons and Dragons coming on and yeah. explaining the new rules. And there was like an Omni Slash kind of thing that had been introduced where you could get, you could roll five criticals with five d20s oh you're going above on my your head. first on your first roll and the guy the, the fan when he heard that he was he, his eyes lit up and he was like oh my god like it was it was geek christmas for him dungeons and dragons christmas he's like that means you could you're, that you could capable of a one hit critical on a, a mega ogre <laughs> level 25 what are you talking about again <laughs> Fucking Dungeons and Dragons is beyond me. If we're gonna do a board game podcast, we're keeping it to just wicked games you can play in an hour. We're playing- How can that be beyond you? You should be all about Dungeons and Dragons, uh, it's, kiddo. It's too much pen and paper bullshit for me. Not that I no anyone who plays it or plays like Magic the Gathering, go for it. I'm just like I'm more into like a, a board game setting. I want to play. Give me like, those little wooden blocks. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. Let's finish this off. Hi, hi, hi. Dexy's Midnight Runner. That's what we're going out on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you guys later. Thanks.